Hey, uh, this is Bree from Peak Show saying howdy to all you ladies out there in Radio Land. Um, I am here with a special announcement that may or may not make you feel some feelings. So today's episode is very exciting. I'm talking about two of my favorite TV shows of all time, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, with my podcast friend Eric Peacock of the Soundtracker podcast. Um, I was never sure if I would be able to do Breaking Bad because it is such a high quality show all throughout, made the peak format difficult. Um, Nevertheless, I made the commitment to finally do this episode. Uh, First of all, thanks to some encouragement from friend of the show, Andrew Jupin, but also uh, for a big and important reason. This is going to be the last episode of Peak Show as you currently know it. Um, This wasn't an easy decision. If you know me IRL, you know that this is something I have struggled with for a while, and I'm sure you've noticed over the last four episodes a serious downgrade in the audio quality, which was caused by technical problems outside of my own control. I did the best I could, but I could not even stand listening to my own episodes, and uh, no one wants to put out an inferior product. I'm a bit of a Gus Fring in that sense. Coincidentally, this episode will see a return back to my typical audio quality, as I really had no choice but to purchase a new computer and microphone. Uh, So that's good but there are still a number of other reasons why the show has become too difficult. As you know, Peak Show is entirely self-produced. My husband helps with the web hosting and the design aspect, but the planning, the post-production, the editing, wrangling guests, that's all me. And it was getting to be a lot. I even made numerous attempts to seek out a co-host with no avail. As you guys remember, when I started the show, it was early 2021. We were still in a partial lockdown. I had not much of a life and I wasn't teaching dance for the first time since I was 17. I was very bored and frankly lost. So this show gave me an excuse to talk to more people, to rewatch some classics, and I had a lot of time to do that as well as research and plan. But now I'm really into my new job, I'm teaching again, and I truly don't have the time. I have even felt for some recent episodes that I don't feel like I know what I'm talking about, because I am just so behind the eight ball. Don't get me wrong, I am glad to not have enough time anymore. My life is very fulfilling at the moment, and I don't want the podcast to be something that brings me down, and that's what it was starting to become. But I'd be lying if I said I wasn't also insanely proud of everything I've done with Peak Show. We've had some amazing discussions, and I've gotten to record with some of my podcast heroes like Patrick Hamilton, Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud, and the guys from We Hate Movies. But some of the most meaningful episodes to me have been the ones that I've done with the likes of Liz, Fred, Mint, Mike, Kelsey, all the people I consider among my best friends. And frankly, I think those are some of my best episodes. So before I say much more, I do want to give a very sincere thank you. Thank you if you've ever listened to the show, if you've ever dropped me a compliment, suggested a guest or episode, reviewed it, or shared it on Twitter. If it's just made you smile, thank you. If you've been on the show, thank you. Thank you if you've thought about Peak Show for even one minute of your life. This has been an incredible journey, and it's really because of everyone else. Thank you to my husband, Jared, for all that back-end help and support. Uh, and for actually listening to my episodes. I had no idea until recently that he actually listened to them, and... Hey, that's all I really wanted. Now I do have some good news. This will be the last episode of Peak Show as you currently know it. I will be coming back with a spin-off show in the summertime since in the summertime I will not be teaching. I will have so much more free time. I will release some details about this on Twitter soon, but I will have many of the same elements of Peak Show that you know and love with a few format changes that allow for greater flexibility and don't quite demand as much mentally out of me. So thank you once again. Enjoy this much higher quality audio of myself and my friend Eric Peacock talking about Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, and that weird Jesse Pinkman movie. Thank you.
Peak Show, live from a world without Coca-Cola. I'm your host, Opie Dead-Eyed Piece of Shit Brie Rohde, and who is with me on the line today? This is Eric Peacock, uh, back again. Really fun to be here. Really excited to be here. Yeah, you are a repeat guest, Eric Peacock of the Soundtracker podcast. You were last on to talk about the enormous world of Matt Stone and Trey Parker, and today you're here to talk about something that is equally appealing to white men, uh, which is not <laughs> not just Breaking Bad, but the entire Breaking bad averse, including El Camino and Better Call Saul. And if I may digress for a moment, dear audience, I was not going to do Breaking Bad, despite uh, both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul being my favorite TV shows of all time, more so than Mad Men, more so than The Sopranos. Um, my concern was always that Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul are both so good all the way through that, like... And Breaking Bad, it's like, we can't talk about the peak of Breaking Bad. It's it's all good. But now we have six seasons of Better Call Saul. Um, we have the movie El Camino, which is a bit more divisive. And uh, it was, you know, the encouragement of our mutual friend, Andrew Jupin of We Hate Movies for giving me just the encouragement to do this. So, uh, and Eric, I'm having you on because... Um, I've gotten to appear on your show recently, um, and also because, like Walter White, you are a teacher, but also, and and <laughs> possibly a meth lord, I don't know, that's your business, um, uh, but also, uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul are TV series that are highly elevated by their soundtracks, so before we go forward... Yep. I want to talk about Soundtracker you've talked about on the show before, but our listeners deserve a refresh. It's a really unique podcast, and like Peak Show, it's also completely independent. So I want to, to I want you to do your plugs up front. I I so I this you know what and damn it after I did the last episode with you, my intention was to start having plugs right up front, and then it just I'm the most scatterbrained person, so I still do them at the very end. And like that was something when you did that, I'm like that's a really good idea. <laughs> And then, and then, of course, I forgot to do it. Um, <clears throat> so, Soundtracker is a podcast that looks at the, uh, you know, the idea that there was a time where every movie had a soundtrack, even if they didn't need one. So, <laughs> I don't just cover like the big ones, like The Crow, or you know, like if I if I did the big ones, there wouldn't there would be still a lot of material, but not not a ton. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But like, and when you start digging into like the deep, I mean, even movies like. Uh, you know, like Major League, that was the best example I can use. Major League, fun movie. Didn't even realize I had a soundtrack. You know what I mean? And went and did it, and like it turned out that some of it was pretty good, actually. Yeah. So, uh, but there, this idea that like everything in the eighties, nineties, especially the nineties and and early two thousands had a soundtrack with it. So, it's part movie discussion, part music discussion, because um, it's kind of the idea of like one of the things I ask is, does this do the two things go well together? You know, is it does, basically does this music work with this movie? And um, you were just on doing basketball. I was. And, and see, I, I'm, I again, so this is the first time in my life that I've been doing this. I say that like I've been doing it for a long time, a year and a half now, that, that I've been like ahead of things. So usually when I record, it's like this goes up in one week <laughs> tops. And so like this has a minute. So I don't know in relation to when this will air, but your basketball will be the second Friday of April. I already know the date that it's in. Uh -huh. So, so yeah, we are ahead. So this is dropping March 30th. So uh, peak show listeners. Oh, you'll be out first. Yeah. You guys literally have not heard the last of me next week or two weeks from now. If you want more peak show, if you want more Brie and who doesn't. Um, exactly. I mean, my parents definitely stopped having kids after they had me. So um, I can, th <laughs> I can think of two people who don't want more Brie. Um <laughs> 
my husband who decided with me to not have children, he's a person who you would say doesn't want more Brie. But if you're not one of those people, if your name is not Mark, Diane, or Jared, head on over to the Soundtracker podcast, but also listen to the Soundtracker podcast other recent episodes, including um, your uh, your recent-ish episodes on Dumb and Dumber. Um, you know, one of yeah. my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And you know, like I, I didn't even think about it until you and uh, your co-host were saying that this might very well miss gen- a generation of people like Dumb and Dumber. Like, yeah. I, I have a colleague, a newish colleague who was born in 1999, which first of all made my spine explode. Because, um, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not old, old. I was born in '89, but I'm used to being the young one at uh, at an office, and now I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm decidedly not the young one no more. And I realize I'm like, this might be a person who just like dumb. Because is Dumb and Dumber something that? people born after it would look back onto akin to like an animal house or something. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Um, But it also made me realize like, wow, like the 90s were this wonderful last bastion of like kind of not wimpy, but just like friendly alt rock that. uh, Yeah. You know, here's the funny thing about that, too, is you talking about people that don't know our conversation about that generations. I don't know if this is a generational thing, but it is funny because one of the written reviews on Soundtracker, and this is where I talk about like people don't understand the depth of soundtracks. Not at all. There was a written review. It was a positive review, five-star review, but it was them saying they were done with the show because it no longer appealed to them. And the thing they pointed to was Dumb and Dumber, and they basically were like, I don't want to spend time. And they basically like worth it, but I don't, and I can't reply to them, but I wanted to be like, I hope you, under, like, I want you to understand that, like, that is like a highly regarded soundtrack. I didn't just like pick a movie out of a hat and be like, like, that is one that like a lot of people hold in high regards, but that's, that's the whole point. Like, you don't, you know, people might not, that don't know Dumb and Dumber or don't know how deep the soundtrack era is, might not understand that like Dumb and Dumber on the surface, you'd be like, this is probably a bunch of dumb music. You know what I mean? But like, like you said, it's like this, like wimpy alt rock that like, a spit or somebody had it they're like top five soundtracks of all time you know what i mean yeah. but and I, I couldn't reply to them and be like no you're missing out like it's actually very good i, I was waiting for the comparison that uh that one song that neither of you liked though something willy like white guy reggae <sighs> that, that did you guys not realize that it's a play on baby elephant walk it, baby elephant uh, walk is like a classic sportsy like organ like do 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 i know what it is i guess i didn't realize that i know what baby elephant walk is i didn't realize my my cousin used to have that as her ringtone that's why i know uh, that song so well. i'm a sports fan so um, yeah <laughs> yeah and and uh I didn't realize that. Ah. I don't think it would change how I feel about the song. Oh, no. <laughs> it, it almost makes it worse because it's taking this delightful yeah. little jaunty thing that is best enjoyed on an organ while eating salty <laughs> foods. <laughs> and making it white guy reggae. Yeah. So now, uh, peak show tradition is uh, that you tell us about a moment in your life that is peak Eric. On our Matt and Trey episode, you talked about skipping school to get the soundtrack for... You, you could not remember if it was either Batman Forever or The Crow, but surely you have another peak Eric moment up your sleeve. So can you tell us about another moment in your life that was peak Eric? Well, okay, so like that that particular story I told because it tied in with like the idea I just pitched Soundtracker. So in keeping with that theme and us doing Breaking Bad, uh, about five years ago... You're making I, you were just ruined it. I was actually going to say that I went to the doctor and found a, a, a spot in my lung and I started selling meth. I didn't actually do that. I was going to pretend oh, that I had the Walter Max. No, 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 no. Uh, I was actually going to go into a whole like spiel that I had like given the serious story about. Yeah, I, uh, I was a, a 
lesion in my lung and uh, I had to sell meth to make the money for it. Now, I, uh, the story, and this is funny because I, I don't, I'm so weird about remembering stories about myself. I remember everything, but this one got brought up by a friend the other day. So like one of my reputations among my friends is that I'm, I'm too nice sometimes because like we'll go places and like I'll get in really awkward conversations because I don't I'm not good at being like okay gotta go buddy you know what I mean so like I've gotten better as I've gotten older but like I'll like get in like just cashiers you know what I mean I'll sit and talk to them for 15 minutes mm -hmm. if we get start, start a conversation my friends like want to get out of there and uh you know there's a lot of times where it could be like detrimental or lead to awkward situations and so um my friend was bringing up this time where I was at the bar this is a long time ago I don't go to bars anymore but uh this girl came up and 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 was like very blatantly like like hitting on me you know and it was That's one of those nice. situations where i just it is it is and i i was just but it was one of those situations where like i just i wasn't interested i wanted to get out of there i wanted like we our friends were holding another bar <laughs> and so I, i'm trying to be nice and you're not going to be like not interested you know i got to get out of here but instead i was like oh i'm sorry and instead of saying i have a girlfriend for some reason i said fiance now what that led to was 30 minutes of this person grilling me on how I met her, how I proposed, what her name was, what kind of ring it was. And I had to like full cloth out of thin air, create a human being because I didn't <laughs> want to like let the lie up. And it was like 30 minutes. To, like I just was like, and my friends, when I left were like, this is what you fucking get. Like you just, sometimes you have to be like, I can't talk. I've got to go. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like I, uh, I created a fictional character on the fly <laughs> just to spare someone's feelings. And um, that's, that's, I know it sounds like I'm being like, well, oh, my problem is I'm too nice, but like, that's just, that's just how I, maybe nice is the wrong word. I'm just not good at like hurting people's feelings, I suppose. Oh, so, it's a uh, terrible feeling. It is. Right. Right. So I, but like, I could have just, I don't know why the word fiance came out. I could have just said like, I have a girlfriend and then answered like easily been like, her name is blah, blah. But instead it turned into this whole, like how we met <laughs> and how I, how I, I don't remember any of the answers that I gave, but like how I proposed was the one where I was like, Jesus Christ, what do I say? Here? You know I, what I mean? Like, I don't, you know, in Canada, like, we actually pronounce it Fianchi. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're kidding. Um, I'm not, but sometimes my husband does that with Britishisms. He was born in the UK and he can convince me that anything is a Britishism and I'll just believe him. Um, because <laughs> I, I am also a bit too nice. Like I am the easiest person to fuck with. Um, because like, <laughs> and it's weird because as a journalist by trade, I do have a really good bullshit meter and I can see through corporate speak amazingly and bat disingenuous interviews. But when people are just being nice and hanging around the bar or whatever, I fall for such bullshit. And, um, <laughs> And it's largely because I'm like, oh, I don't want to call my friends out on their bullshit. They're being nice. They're being charitable by spending time with me. Like, <laughs> see, see, I would think I'm going to make a really fucking really bad dad joke here. Just be prepared. Nice. I would think the way that the way that Canadians pronounce fiance was fiance. A isn't that like the thing a. you say up there is a. <laughs> it is, and you know, I've been called out by enough of my American guests to have listen back to myself and realize that I do actually say a I think more than the average Canadian because um I'm from northern Ontario I think we've talked about this before Ontario is the midwest of Canada and the, right. the northern part is like that rural midwest of like just nothing but trains and fields and um <laughs> fields where nothing grows that's actually the, that's the main difference is there's a lot of areas of Ontario where nothing grows um but uh with like up there, it's very Fringlish. You know, there's a good mix of Francophone with Anglophone there. And um, so we say a a lot and we say dare, like there, but we say pronounce it like dare. Um, 
not so much in southern Ontario where I am now. And um, I had to unlearn like my bad Fringlish accent when I uh, started my upper schooling and become a lot more of a like non-regional accented speaker. But uh, it comes out, especially when I'm excited and I love a good A. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a pretty fun thing to say. I just can't like I'm such a creature of habit mm -hmm. that like folding like other cultural like words into my everyday language is like i'm past that point at 42 you know yeah. what i mean like i can't do it. i have to like <laughs> every day say at the mirror absolutely for like, yeah well, not, not gonna happen but i like i actually do like the a thing hooray hooray um so uh we like to get into the history of breaking bad but first we're going to talk about our history of it so mm -hmm. i think my history with breaking bad of how i came into it was like fairly typical of a lot of people which is to say i was completely unaware of it for the first several seasons um i don't even know if it was on any conventional networks up in canada and certainly like i was in university when it started so i did not have cable um i became aware of it a little bit before um it hit netflix which was around the third season because the guy i was dating at the time he was a super film and tv nerd he was really into it um i watched one episode with him and it was i think the season three finale because i do believe i just i hear um brian cranston's voice saying uh like saying gus's address over and over um and uh, he downloaded it illegally but i felt in love i fell in love with the show i'm like yes i will break the law for you um <laughs> we found it on dvd caught up on it by the fifth season like i was changing my plans to watch it the night it came out um the series finale i was supposed to watch at home over a bad like internet connection because again like i didn't have cable i was super broke um my internet crapped out when I got home from work. And so I drove like an hour to my parents' place in the suburbs. I passed someone getting hit on a bike and like, or like they had gotten hit on a bike and they were waiting for an ambulance. I did not even stop to see if this guy was okay. I didn't hit him. I needed to be clear. He was already hit when I saw him. Um, uh, because I'm just like- story. I am a cyclist, so I, yeah. Um, but I like to go out to my parents' place at the suburbs. My parents had never seen an episode of this, and they're like, okay, our first episode of Breaking Bad, and then it's that fucking machine gun. They're like, what an exciting show. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's how much I love Breaking Bad. Um, I am a huge devotee of it. I love a good rewatch of it. Like once a year, even if I'm really bored, I'll do a rewatch. I was hesitant, though, with Better Call Saul. I loved the Saul character, and I thought maybe it was going to be like a client of the week type thing. Um, I didn't have much interest in it. I watched the first few episodes, and I found it so slow. But it wasn't until COVID hit, and then when Odenkirk had that heart attack, and I saw how much he developed this reputation. Like, he, he was beloved at this point. And so I was like, oh, shit. Like, this show must be the real deal. So, you know, what else was I doing? Because it was COVID. I got around to watching it, and... I now at this point think it's better than Breaking Bad, and we will get into that. <laughs> uh, I I actually, uh, oh God, I go back and forth on that, oh, but I, I, I mostly do, do yeah. agree. I mostly do agree. So for me, uh, it's actually really funny how this whole whole thing happened with Breaking Bad because I love Brian Cranston, and and um, even there were like previews for it coming on, you know, and it's like first episode, and like I uh, I watched like the first three episodes, and I loved it mm -hmm. but again this was pre like netflix streaming and it just one of those things happened where i got busy and this is, used to happen to me and it still kind of does i guess um but now it's a lot easier when you can find things on like hulu or 10 other places but like i'll miss like two episodes of a show and then it just derails everything because i'm not gonna like really jump does. in two episodes later and so it's like 
So what happened was I love these first three episodes. Like it just had me from the like minute it started, like the, 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 the second breaking bed started, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm on board here. Let's see where this goes. And, uh, and then I didn't watch it again until season four actually is when it, I got into it back on Netflix. I was like, Oh, you know, I've been meaning to come back to this and then mm -hmm. binge through the first four seasons in like a very short, I'm not. And the thing is, I am not a binge watcher. No. I am not like, I don't like doing it. I like to savor things. I like to spread them out. I don't like, I hate like having something I enjoy. And then all of a sudden, like three days later, I'm like, well, I, I'm out of that to do now. I like having it to watch. And, and time is an issue too, as far as that goes. Yeah. So, uh, but I mean, I burned through mm -hmm. Breaking Bad. And uh, it is a shockingly uh, bingeable show, show. And I think right. there's a lot about it in the levity of the writing and stuff that like, like last night I'm doing uh, something that I don't do once a year, maybe every couple of years. I'm doing a little rewatch of Mindhunter right now. And um, oh, it's so good. Last night I turned on season two of Mindhunter because I found the uh, Leafs Islanders game a little too disturbing. And so I needed to, uh, you know, get something a little lighter. So I put on Mindhunter season two. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> fucking Holt McElhane is like weird little kid crucifying shit. Um, but like <laughs> that is that is a show that I can watch two episodes of. And then it's, I'm like, this is too heavy. Breaking yeah. Bad is extremely heavy subject matter. Like I was talking about this with my husband. I'm like it's insane that that, that show kills two children. Like right. two children, one on screen. And, yeah. and yet it never feels too heavy to binge. Like, right. And, it doesn't. Yeah. And like, first of all, as far as Mindhunter goes, we just did, I just did Zodiac for the show. <gasps> and we like, we just like, had a long like oh about how much it sucks that Mindhunter got canceled like we were like just 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 so upset when that came up mm -hmm. but the great great show but um I think the only other show that I found myself where I and, and, and this one I got caught up with after one season this is when I read it on DVD after the first season ended uh was Lost where it was like the show ended and I was like I'm not leaving my house <laughs> I am going to watch but I, I rented two, two discs in one day uh <laughs> from the video store and skipped a quiz in college because I had like gotten to the episode where they found out there was one extra person on the Island than there was on the airplane itinerary. And I was like, what happens next? And that's how breaking bad is. And then it's such a rare, special thing for a show. I have had very few shows that have, have hit me that way where I'm like, I've got to, I can't, I'm, I'm going to stay up and I'm going to get four hours of sleep and suffer tomorrow because mm -hmm. I need to see how this is going to go from here. And, uh, yeah. but I was like you with better call Saul where, when I first heard the idea, and I love Bob Odenkirk. I'm an old school Bob, Bob and Dave, oh, you know, Mr. Show. God, fan. I love Mr. Show. Yeah. And, uh, but I thought, see, I didn't think it was going to be a procedural for, or crime of the week thing. What I thought it was going to be was like zany comedy. And mm -hmm. like, and like, I just was like, I don't know. And, but the, for, for me though, it had me the very first episode too, where I was like, no, this is not what I was expecting. This is okay. You mm -hmm. know, this feels like breaking bad. And much like you, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, uh, it's tough. It is a tough. Yeah. Which one I think is better. It's almost one of the situations where it's like, which one that I just watched an episode of most recently. And that's what I'll tell you is the better one. You know what I mean? Like, I, I will say that there's something about better call Saul that is good enough that it distracts me from a very glaring thing that I would normally notice right away in any other show. And I forget about this constantly. There is really only one female character. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and I, <laughs> and, and I, I don't uh, care. I don't care. <laughs> well, and the thing about it is 
the female character on that is probably the best character in the entire show. You know what I mean? Like, well, we're going to talk about how I feel about Kim Wexler. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm curious to see the way you said that. I love Kim. Oh uh, God, but we may disagree. No, no, it's it's. Oh, okay. I am so in love with her. I'm in love with Ray okay. Seahorn. But it's. I think she is one of the best characters that they. That, mm-hmm. So it's like I don't care that she's the only woman because she is written better than a lot of the other women in Breaking Bad. Although, and we'll, I'll elaborate on this later i actually feel like one of the most underrated characters in the whole series is marie schrader um no oh, yeah. yeah but uh so um yeah like and one thing i was noticing about better call saul as i was kind of making up these notes is like breaking bad and better call saul are largely about like contrasting um contrasting you know these horrible horrible people with very earnest normie like bit players and day players and <laughs> mm-hmm. stuff but i do like that with better call saul you get the occasional little freaky weirdo like um <laughs> like mark prox who weirdly came up in another episode I, I love him as a character actor daniel wormald like he's such a little weirdo um or um uh the kettleman's they're so bizarre and you love to hate them um and especially mrs kettleman and yet like when they come back in the fourth season you're like cheering you're like yes these yeah. awful people are back <laughs> yeah and you know it took me watching because there was such a break between seasons that like i actually was like okay wait i had to like that happened a few times with this where because there were like long gaps between these seasons for better call salt where yeah. i would be like Okay, wait, I got to remember who this because I'm not again, time constraints for me. It's hard for me as much as I would love to like before every season that the show started catch back up by rerunning the entire series. I just never have time for that. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So like there are times where I'd be like, okay, wait, I got to look up who this is. And then I'd be like, oh, that's right. Like, I remember this character. That was like three years ago. You know? <laughs> like, uh, But I love that they do that mm-hmm. um, and bring these characters back like yeah. that. The hard thing is, and I mentioned this in my in my like trivia and history section, but like that has bitten some characters in the ass. And that's why it's hard to do shows with with young characters because RJ Mitty was largely yeah. written out of like the third and fourth season, especially because like that's, I mean, that's a very, very much a gendered thing. Like girls, or I should say defab people, like we we hit a lot of our physical maturation at like, you know, 12 through 14. Uh, and then from there on, our changes are subtle. But boys, it's the late teens. And he went from mm-hmm. looking like a boy to looking like a man. And they had to like write him out of a lot of stuff because it was so conspicuous, the difference. And uh, got, and and that's why I feel like Junior is, uh, spoiler alert, one of the most undev- underdeveloped characters in, in the franchise. And it's of no fault of his own or RJ Mitty's like. Well, and like, that's a big problem with a lot of shows. It's, I think that's funny too, because like, uh, lost again go back to lost Mm -hmm. uh the whole thing with walt and michael you know walt got too big and walt was like very important to the show until he wasn't Mm -hmm. because he got too big but uh i love how stranger things we're just like fuck it we're powering through it these kids have aged a decade and we're just going to keep going with this and pretending that it didn't happen yeah (laughs) i i think that's kind of what you got to do i mean it also helps that the stranger things kids like i i know people tend to cast uh cast older you know, which is also like mm-hmm. a labor thing, but they got actual kids for Stranger Things. Yeah. So it is actually, for me, I didn't find it that conspicuous. I thought it was extremely reasonable that these kids are shooting up like weeds because that's what happens at 12 through 14. Like it's, yeah, they're oh, it freaks. Does. Tweens are freaks. <laughs> 
yeah, I work with the, I work around yeah. that age a lot, you know, like they all, they, I, I, a middle school kid grew like eight inches over the oh, summer. Jesus so I'm, like, day and I'm yeah. like, how tall did you get over the summer? Oh, like <laughs> I'm not a short person. I'm not a tall person either, but I'm, f- I'm five, six and I've got like eighth graders at dance that are taller than me and just mm-hmm. like would, would, I would get carded to buy alcohol before them. Mind you, legal drinking age here is 19 and not 21. Thank you, communist Canada. Um, So anyway, uh, the history of Breaking Bad. Now, Vince Gilligan had been working on the series, you know, developing it for years. He had been a writer, obviously, for uh, pretty much the entire run of our previous Peak Show episode, The X-Files. But he wanted to create a character-driven TV show in which the protagonist became the antagonist. Now, here's where I'm going to get cranky right away. There's that famous quote that he said if he wanted to, you know, take someone from Mr. Chips to Scarface, which I feel like people need to abandon. And like, yes, I know I'm taking, you know, the creator's own words against him. But if people are allowed to tell me that GIF is pronounced GIF with a hard G, even though the creator says it's a soft G, (laughs) then I'm allowed to say that Vince Gilligan's thesis of Breaking Bad is not good man becomes bad. I think that's what it started out as. But it's like, I really think as the series went on, he clearly shifted away from like mundane man becomes bad to man has the potential to be a monster inside him. And mm-hmm. it's it's about the 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 capacity for evil, which to me also is like ties very ties in very well with the themes of Better Call Saul, which is like hiding from who you really are and like pursuing who you really are. So the thesis seems to truly be this is always who Walter White truly was. And he admits uh-huh. it in the final episode. So I just think the whole Mr. Chips to Scarface like. People need to stop saying that as like that's the the central thesis of Breaking Bad. That was the initial idea, but that's not what the central thesis is. No, it's I mean, it's it is abundantly clear as the honestly, by the time he watches Jane die, Mm -hmm. like I feel like, you know what I mean? Like there's no because that's very early in the show still, you know, like it's not. Yeah. So like that. But like you said, you know, at the end, he admits I did it because I like, you know, like, yeah, like he and like the the whole thing where he's he's bitter about the way things went for him in life. But then you see that it was like his own fucking doing Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, all his bitterness is directed. And yeah, like I I, and I I agree with you. I think when he first started the show, Vince first started the show, that was like, okay, we have this idea. But as it went on and it could even be, again, seeing. Kyle Cranston played the role. Mm-hmm. All kinds of things could have contributed to. No, we're gonna play with the idea that Walter was always kind of a dick. Yeah, and um, this just is just just really brought it out of him being sick enough to not have to hide yeah. it. And Cranston, like, there's actually a lot that the show owes to him because of the way he helped develop Walter as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he kind of wrote in Walter's backstory because Vince Gilligan didn't like. I love listening to the um, Breaking Bad Insider and Better Call Saul Insider podcast, by the way, because like you. T- you talk about things like Vince Gilligan is so good at kind of coming up with a story after and being like, oh, yeah, and this is what I imagine. And he, he first of all, Vince Gilligan has a very soothing voice. He's great to talk. He's <laughs> like, yeah, I always just imagine that Walter was more like it's, it's nice. It's like you're listening to your friendly uncle. But um, <laughs> but yeah, that like he even like uh, Cranston helped out with the character design and stuff. And he was the one who came up with the idea of Walt's backstory about his father having Huntington's disease and stuff like that. And so um, it, it was so much to Cranston. Um, I have this in my later notes, but I'm going to say it now since we're on it. I've had this long belief and I made a TikTok on this that went kind of viral and it got I got really annoyed by all the notifications and then like <laughs> went went ghost for a week. Walter is not nice. 
like pre-Heisenberg, pre-Meth Walter, he is not a nice man. There is no evidence that this man is sweet or affectionate. And it's a really interesting rewatch quality and something I think a lot about. It's it's a maybe accidental commentary on how we, like as a society, uh, view niceness. Walter comes across as nice because he's a pushover, he's quiet, and he expresses very few needs, but he's actually uncomfortably angry in so many early scenes, and no one picks up on it. And you contrast that with Jesse, who is a person society does not think of as nice because of the way he speaks or his impulsivity, when he does demonstrate even early that he's so good-natured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. so about, like, and, niceness. And, and, that's, and that's, like, again... Um, whether intentional or not, that sort of turning that whole thing on its head. Because again, like, you know, I think I think early on, well, uh, obviously we'll talk about the Jesse season one thing. So obviously that might not have been the initial intention. But um, yeah, like, because yeah, Pinkman is such like a, a, a sweetheart who just, you know, wrong crowd or whatever you want to call it. Um, but like a significantly better person than Walter could ever have dreamed of being. Mm-hmm. And it goes with my steadfast belief. And this is the more controversial thing I'm going to say. And I fully expect people to fight me on this. Walter doesn't like his family that much. Walter does not like his family that much. And like, we know the whole do it, th- do it for my family thing is just a cover. But like, Every interaction with his family comes across as acting, even when he's being nice. It's this overcompensating theatrical thing. And I feel like it's a thing where, like, no one else can see, like, his, you know, it's his wife slowly beginning to see it throughout the series. But, like, you know, the people who are a little bit more blind to it, like Hank, like Junior, they don't see it, but it's all very much a put on. So, like, he... A couple times in early seasons, like he brings up Junior's disability once or twice in a way that indicates that it's a thing he views as a failure in his life. Like, my theory is we know from the backstory that Walter was in Grey Matter when he was in grad school and he was dating Gretchen Schwartz then. But then I've tracked this. This is like my Pepe Silvio, like Charlie Day moment. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So after they departed, he was then at Los Alamos National Laboratory when he met Skylar. That was that was like name checked. Um, when they moved into the house, he was at a company called Sandia Laboratories. And then at some point between Junior being born and then he became a teacher. So the unseen, unsaid thing is that Walter steadily downgraded in his life. He went from, you know, big like startup that would be worth billions to a national laboratory to a more small laboratory. And so like the blank I filled in is that Walt either left in anger or was forced out because he's a difficult man. But I think he views Mm -hmm. his family as a representation of that downgrade. Absolutely. He and I agree with you. I I don't know. I feel like the word I would use would be more resents them and uses them as as the reason that he didn't get to live the life that he wanted is because mm-hmm. he married this, this you know, he married Skyler and he had Walt Jr. And um, I do, I don't know that I necessarily, I, I don't know that I necessarily agree. Cause you said, you said that you think he, would you say he just didn't like his family? Right. Is that how you said it? Yeah. Like he didn't like them. I don't think he likes them all that much. <laughs> I, I, okay. I agree with you. I, I think resents the better word because at yeah. the end of the yeah. day, I do think in the final episodes when he loses his family, mm-hmm. that's when he's like genuinely like, especially junior. I think junior might be the one. Yeah that that hurt him the most out of everything that he lost it's more like i've been thinking a lot about narcissistic parents because every millennial is convinced that their parent is a narcissist and i'm not you know (laughs) but like you know how they say that a lot of narcissists like have children because they want someone to look up to them and i feel like that is more like he views junior as someone who is there to look up to him and to admire Mm. him and that's also why you see like 
throughout there are a few indications throughout the series that there's this power struggle between him and hank because junior is starting to admire hank more and uh-huh. yeah so uh yeah so uh he got um fellow x-files writer tom schnauz on the staff as well as peter gold uh gould i should say Sony Pictures Television agreed to develop most networks pass until AMC, which was still in its infancy at the time. Um, and uh, it was looking to take on more originals as it was about to launch Mad Men. So uh, for casting, Cranston was directly cast by Gilligan because they worked together on the X-Files. Uh, Cranston, yeah, he wrote his own ideas for Walter's backstory. Um also, Aaron Paul and Dean Norris were vouched for because of their history with the X-Files. I love that Aaron Paul was thought by Sony executives to look too old to play Jesse, considering in in Better Call Saul, and I've gotten over this, but you, he's still playing early 20s Jesse when he's like your age. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's jarring yeah. that he like seeing him at, again, like you said, I like how you said my age, like, oh, hey, thank you. He's, he's an old, just say old. You can just say old. Well, you but that's the old. thing he's is old. 40 isn't old, but it's just that you can't <laughs> convince know. me that 40 I, looks 20. You know? I'm kidding. No, you're right. Yeah. You're right. And it's, it, it is, it's more ridiculous to see him in the Jesse character saying Jesse things yeah. at that age, you know, well, especially but... after like the path. And again, I've said this a million times in this podcast. I feel like the only person who watched and enjoyed the path, but, um, Oh my God, I forgot about that show. I, that's another one that I watched the first few and then stopped watching it and went back to, but I love Hugh Dancy. I love everyone. In Michelle Monaghan. Really like. Yeah. Yes. And his, the actor who plays his son, I don't, do not know who this guy is. He looks so much like a young Heath Ledger. But, like, he went straight to this show where he is playing the parent of a teenager and it looks believable. Like, I mean, the thing that I think saves Aaron Paul is the same reason why, like, he's a good-looking man, but he's not, like, Hollywood handsome. And that's because he doesn't have chiseled bone structure. He has a quality that my husband has, and he knows that I think this is beautiful. He has a very round head. And that can (laughs) give him a bit of, like, a cherubic look. Um, but it's like 40, 40 years old is still 40 years old. Like there are still like, even I, I'm 33 and like, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, these lines aren't going to go away now. Like this is, there's no reversing certain things. <laughs> I mean, maybe when you have a lot of money there is, but, um, <laughs> yeah, but then it doesn't look, well, that's the other thing too. I'm glad that they didn't try to do that monstrous digitally altering thing to Jesse no. to make him look younger. I'm glad they just rolled with it. Like the stranger thing, like whatever he's, he's old. He's too old to be playing the age that he's playing here, but we're not going to, we're not going to make it look. And they were like smart. They put him in dark scenes, you know, mm-hmm. like, so I think it was fine. Um, So you mentioned the Jesse season one thing. And I will say, this is like one of those common trivia things. Jesse was supposed to die at the end of the first season. There's this misconception that he was spared because he was a popular character and that it was almost this last minute decision. Um, People need to remember that audiences were barely watching Breaking Bad in the beginning. Uh, It was not generating good returns, which is why it which is why until the last season it had a shit budget. Uh, The main reason Jesse was spared and also the writers were equally considering Hank to be on the chopping block, but it was because of the WGA strike and the shortened first season. Um, So they decided they were going to wait to make any hasty decisions until the next season. And Vince Gilligan said as early as the second season that he wanted to keep Jesse around because he loved Aaron Paul so much. So the decision to spare them wasn't so much external, it was more internal. And they decided actually quite soon that they were not going to kill Jesse. And that's one of those like happy accident things because I can't imagine, you know, at the end of the day, Jesse became the heart of this show. Oh yeah. I mean, he was the heart of the prices, right? Like. You've seen, you've seen that clip, right? Yes. Oh, yes. he's so sweet. Like I, here's the thing: I fully believe that everyone from that show is 
like super nice. Like you see yeah. everything you see, like Cranston and and Aaron Paul are still like best fucking friends, like, you know, with their little tequila company. I mean, Aaron Paul does give off the vibes of of an actor who at this point will not say no to anything. Um, but wow. I mean, I loved him on the path. I loved him in Bojack. I thought his voice and the t- character that he created for Todd was amazing. Um and I didn't watch, I've never watched Bojack. So unfortunately, I'll have to take your word on that one. It's a heavy but, watch. Uh, it's a heavy watch. It's right for Yeah. But um, like, I, I don't know, maybe again, sports fan, like I'm seeing Aaron Paul on my TV constantly hawking sports betting sites now. And so I'm like, oh, you're better than this. But still, it's just like, you know, him and uh, Jonathan Banks and, and Brian Cranston. And I mean, everyone from the cast just kind of being these big goofballs together. I'm like, oh, you know, you you guys have professional good vibes. Good for you. <laughs> Well, and another thing, and I'm not saying, okay, this is going to sound like an insult, but trust me when I say it's not, it works in Aaron Paul's favor. At the end of the day, he's not the strongest actor either. I think he but, can only do Jesse. He really, yeah. it, it, it works for him though, because I think the fact that he's not, and like you, okay, so you take that and factor in the fact that he's not like your typical actor handsome, and it gives him like an everyman quality that makes him, mm-hmm. I think, very likable. Yeah. Uh, as an audience member, you know? Yeah. So I don't think he can lead a movie. I, I think the path was a great opportunity for him. Um, but it's like, he doesn't, he's not Hollywood handsome, but he's also not like another person that I can't wait to talk about, Jesse Plemons. I think I've made my <laughs> love of Jesse Plemons very clear in recent episodes of this show that I think he's like Hollywood's new weirdo. Like, yeah. and, and he works so much better as a fat actor. That's why I, I'm not mad that they like, they're just like, oh shit, we're doing El Camino and Todd's fat now. Oh, well, like, yeah, well, yeah. Who which cares? is who gives a shit in six months. We'll just say he went on a fucking like master cleanse and uh, before, right before <laughs> Jesse killed him. But like, it's, you know, he, he was slimming down to impress, uh, to impress What's her name? Lydia. Kirsten Dunst. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> Have you like met he, Lydia? I thought you meant in real life that he had slipped no, down. No, that's the thing. Is Kirsten Dunst, her. obviously, you know, like me, loves a good soft belly. Um, <laughs> and what woman doesn't? If you don't, ladies learn to love it. Um, but like, <laughs> he has such a strange look to his face and stuff. He is so unsettling. I love him in The Power of the Dog. I love him in, um, I, I love him in I'm Thinking of Ending Things. He is a fantastic actor. But like, so Aaron Paul doesn't really have either of those. He's just a bit too much of an everyman and he might just end up being the best friend for the rest of his life. But have you seen Clemens in uh, Game Night as the weird neighbor to... I, uh, Jason Bateman's character that like wants to constantly come over and hang out, but they don't want him to hang out. So and like they keep giving him weird excuses. I have not seen Game Night, but I had no idea Jesse Plemons was in it. So I'm probably going to see it now. <laughs> it's honestly, uh, Hollywood cranks out like a really good one, like really good comedy a year. You know, people shit on Hollywood comedies, but Hollywood's capable of like one really good comedy a year. And that that was the one of that year because mm-hmm. it's really funny. Yeah. It's a very funny movie. So uh, the third season, AMC almost dropped Breaking Bad, prompting Sony to desperately look for a new network. They did reverse their decision, but obviously they knew it was on the cancellation chopping block. Um, This was also around the time that Netflix added Breaking Bad as one of its first big content acquisitions. So that really drove up viewership for the show.
show over the fourth season, like considerable rise. It went from averaging under 2 million per episode to an average of 4.32 million and 10.5 million people watched the finale. Uh, and that's US alone. So um, it's and it's had pretty much consistently flawless reviews, like the first season being a consensus of 86 percent, everything else between 95 to 100. Uh, same with Better Call Saul. Better Call Saul was never as high as Breaking Bad, but it was always above 90 percent. Uh, so um, now Breaking Bad has won 16 Primetime Emmy Awards and had a total of 58 nominations. Most wins have gone to Cranston as well as Paul Gunn and Esposito. Um, when I was looking it up under criticism on Wikipedia, there's just one line. Breaking Bad has been criticized by some members of the law enforcement community for saying it promotes the manufacturing of meth. Because <laughs> it yeah, makes I learned it, how to make meth. It makes it look so Bad. good. Also, I'll say this. <laughs> As a business reporter, one thing that I really cannot stand, first of all, if you, you know, just writing advice for the general public, if you are writing about companies, do not call them they. Refer to them as it. Like not Nike said yeah. their production facility. No, Nike said its production facility. Companies aren't people. Um, and it's a nice kind of like anti-establishment thing. But also stop referring to industries as communities. It's not the law enforcement community. It's the law enforcement industry. And doesn't that just feel a little bit darker? Um, and I, it, I'm allowed to say that as a business reporter. <laughs> the thing is, it's, and it's, that's sort of like a, a version of manufacturing consent, I guess, when you call them like a community yeah. or, You're, you know what I mean? Yeah. It makes them sound warm and friendly. Yeah. Like we all know. I've also seen some people say about Breaking Bad, like that this show is very pro DEA and pro war on drugs. And I completely disagree. Like when it comes down, like, yes, the final season kind of comes down to Hank versus Walter, but I don't think you're supposed to find either of these to be righteous. And Hank is a fucking cowboy cop asshole. Like, but it's that like, mm -hmm. it's a great message about how like you are never going to be rooting for a hundred percent good guy. And I definitely think if anything, this show is a huge indictment of the war on drugs. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I at no point found this to be propaganda or pro-cop. Like, um, I mean, they don't because when it's I think I, I mean, if you look, if it's to be true, propaganda, pro-cop, the cops have to win. And that does not happen at any point in no. this show. You know what I mean? Like it's uh, they're, they're not victors. They they Hank. And I, I mean, I look, I, Dean Norris is, I, have you seen Dean Norris kind of shit on capitalism and stuff on Twitter before too? It's kind of cool. He's shit on like the <laughs> idea of like how our system works, but he, he, uh, that's another you know, guy really, more so than Aaron Paul will never have anything as successful after this show as he did no. with Hank. But I'm like, I look at him. He just bought a fucking pub. Like he seems to be living a good life. Yeah. yeah but like Hank, you know, I love Hank, but Hank's righteousness and, and you said cowboy cop shit mm -hmm. is is also what got him killed more just as much as walt did oh yeah absolutely um so a few other bits of trivia tuco was supposed to stick around as the big bad longer but was killed off due to raymond cruz's lack of availability uh dean norris asked for hank to be killed off sooner so he could be part of another project and vince gilligan unfortunately denied him that i'm just like what what had to wait book of henry like <laughs> <laughs> under the dome, under the dome, that fucking CBS show where he learns that brown people have feelings like 
Um, uh, and then one of my favorite things, Mike was introduced as a character at the last minute because originally the cleaner upper from Jane's death was supposed to be Saul and Bob Odenkirk was not available for the episode ABQ. So Banks's performance was so praised that they just looked for an opportunity to bring him back in the third season. And like, I love Jonathan Banks had such a great little like character actor career before this, but he's another person who like, he saw some nice little like renewed success after this, after this. And I, I love him. He looks like a basset hound. That's okay. He is. I forget what. Anyway, some episode of my show, uh, a guest described somebody as a guy with a face and meaning. <laughs> like, I know exactly Jonathan what you Banks mean. is one of those guys where like he has a face, you yeah. know, it is so funny when I watch old shit that he was in and I'm like, you, because it, it, it's, he looks ex- the same and completely different as a young man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you, you, once he talks, you're like, Oh shit, it's Jonathan yeah. Banks. Uh, 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 the blob, the, the a blob remake, mm-hmm. you know, he's in the blob remake. And like, it's just so funny when you see him, you're like, Hey, it's, it's Jonathan Banks. Yeah. And, uh, cause again, he's, he's a guy with a face. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, whenever I, uh, want to, um, seduce my husband, I just look at him and I do my mic voice. Um, because <laughs> I have this thing where I am like, I can be a very charming person when I need to be. But the second I, I get the idea that someone is like falling for my charm or enjoying my company, I just do the most unappealing thing I can think of. And often that is <laughs> pretending to be Mike Ermintrout. And I'm just like, Walter, no more half measures. I stuck my, I stuck my pistol so far down his throat. Like, <laughs> I love him so much. Um, I'm so sorry for the listening public for that. Um, so yeah, Better Call Saul, con- the concept was developed as of 2013, uh, Peter Gould and Gilligan eventually serving as co-showrunners until Gilligan stepped back from the role in the third season. Um, it was during the development process that they determined that they would make it a prequel about Jimmy's transition to Saul. Um, and this is more of the true good guy to bad guy narrative. But again, I think it is more like talking about like who you really are. And like, I mean... As as a Catholic or someone who was raised Catholic, a big theme in Better Call Saul is punishment and punishing yourself, um, mm-hmm. which is basically Kim's whole plot. Um, so, like, and um, they they determined that um, they didn't think Odenkirk could carry a show, or not that Oden, they didn't think the Saul character could carry a show. That's why they made it about Jimmy's transition into Saul. But I also I'm guessing that's why they expanded the cast uh, a lot more. And uh, so here's. Here's my main case for Better Call Saul might be the better show. I think it is a much more character-driven show and rounds out every character, whereas Breaking Bad was essentially singularly focused on Walt and then, you know, Jesse being the breakout character. Like, even Gus and Mike. And bringing them back for Better Call Saul could have felt so fanservice-y. And yet it was awesome. Um, It felt so nice and lived in. And I love that they took it as an opportunity. Like, they didn't just pander. They're like, let's explore their motivations. Let's explore, like, what made Mike abandon certain principles. Let's get a little bit into Gus's DNA of why he is the way he is without necessarily, like, doing, like, a Marvel movie level, like, pathologizing of him. Um, And, like, I think, for example, the conclusion of Gus after, you know, he has survived, after Lalo is dead... It's so beautiful because like the way he goes and you think he's going to sit down with this, you know, 
quasi love interest and have a glass of wine. But it becomes clear Gus cannot relax. He he has won, but he cannot relax. And that's the irony is we know him as a man who is always calm out on the outside. And as calm as he is all the time, he will never truly let his guard down. And this is something that we kind of inherently knew in Breaking Bad, that he's not actually relaxed. He has his guard up all the time. But like Better Call Saul just gave us a chance to really spend time with it and see like what does that mean for the way this man lives his life? And that was one of the things that I really liked about this was like, because uh, Esposito is just an incredible, mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, an incredible actor. And he's I, so funny, too. Like I know yeah. he's he's in Godfather of Harlem right now, mm-hmm. and that's a really great show that he's in. He's in a lot of. I mean, he's in so many things right now. And his it's career like, like is so long. Things. Like he's. Been I know. Around. I know. But like the the depth of character, because Mike Mike was you know one of my absolute favorite characters on Breaking Bad. I love Mike to death. Um, and Gus, you know, just a, a really but like a few years removed, and Gus like. You know, Gus's early season appearances in Better Call Saul were uh, sporadic at best, you know, but then he became more of, and like, it, it was like this reminder of like, God, Gus really is a like, an interesting villain. Mm-hmm. It's an extremely interesting villain yeah. on the show. And uh, that's, you know, that's in large part due to uh, both writing and like, I love getting more of his, like you said, motivations because you get some of his motivations in Breaking Bad, but you get more mm-hmm. to what that character is all about with Better Call Saul. And that's one of the things I like, too, is that it didn't feel remotely fan servicey having them come back. It was just really nice to spend time with those characters again. There were even got. There were some aspects of like bringing certain characters back that felt extremely fan service. He's somewhere out of necessity cuz like uh some of those people have aged like milk. And so you know who I want to know what his secret is? David Costabile who played Gale. He was the one person who actually managed to look younger. Like Yes. Has he been getting work and I mean that in both sense, senses of the word cuz like he lo- he so looks like this idealistic young grad student. I was excited to see him. Like, I get that if you're going to do the Salamanca backstory, you can't not have the cousins. But like, they're not the cousins anymore. They're the uncles. Like, they look so <laughs> old. And then like, I'll get to this. I I, I have a bit about ri- written about this later. But bringing back Victor and Tyrus, these minor characters, like Brit- they they were brought back solely for the purpose of going. Oh, I remember that guy. And those two look so much older. And like, you you can just have two different henchmen. I would believe that Gus has gone through a couple henchmen in his time. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, but they were supposed to be this otherworldly sort of threat yeah. in Breaking Bad until they weren't anymore. Yeah. So I didn't mind them showing up in Better Call. But I get what you're saying. You feel like with the kind of life that Gus lives in, as many people as you see die on this show, mm. that Gus probably most certainly would have lost a few enforcers over the years. Absolutely. Um, I also like, I I didn't i didn't hate the walter and jesse stuff and i especially loved like walter walter's part in the finale of better call saul was vince gilligan's kind of ultimate way of saying like please everyone who thought walter white was cool like stop thinking he's cool he's an asshole like walter is at his most unlikable in that finale Um, (laughs) yeah no it was because and you gotta wonder how vince feels about like Walter being used to push Doritos and shit now. You know what I mean? There's got to be a part of him that's like, this sucks. 
<laughs> I mean, again, Vince Gilligan seems so incredibly unbothered. Like, um, yeah. that he's just he's just there eating his chicken wings, recording his podcasts. Um, <laughs> you know, I have a question. You made me think of something. I guess technically, at the end of the day, El Camino is that. But let's say that you he you said you know initially the idea for Better Call Saul was different. Let's say that that we've got the prequel, we've got the middle Breaking Bad. If they were to do a sequel series that followed Breaking Bad, who would you want to see that that series revolve around? Have you thought this through before? You almost Absolutely. like it's like take your hat. Yeah. Okay. So I've often thought, uh, like I love um, reading about like either like one of my favorite um, articles written in the last couple of years was an interview with uh, I'm going to sound like a fucking insane person here, but Kip Kinkle. Um, and um, his first ever interview from prison and talking about like his attempts to piece together everything that that he did and you know his experience with mental illness and stuff and I love like I love looking at people that like society does not want to hear from and I think Skylar's attempts to live to lead a normal life you know maybe she went to Colorado or something and is off doing her own thing now like I I want I definitely want to know what Skylar is up to um I, and like, I also would love the idea, and this is 100% stolen from Andrew Jupin, but I really, I would have loved if Badger and Skinny Pete had come back for Better Call Saul. Like, <laughs> and again, you know, this is your casting problem solved because they intentionally cast the actor to play Skinny Pete way older than he was because he's a fucking meth head. Like, and so you don't have to worry about him aging really. Like it just, he just looks like he's having a bad day. And Matt- He's already aged. And Matt Jones, like he has perma baby face, so you don't have to worry about Badger, but like, um, like have the through line of badger and skinny Pete just showing up every now and then like a statler and waldorf kind of thing um <laughs> but yeah i have really thought um about skylar or about um kaylee ermintrout and especially now that we know about like that mike's daughter-in-law like she was not stupid she was not naive she knew something was up and so i would love to see their attempts to move on and you know fig like her you know maybe what happened what happened to pop pop like yeah. Kelly's a good one. That's a good one. I had not actually thought this through. So this was like, I had not thought of this before. Uh, but I think, I, yeah, I don't think there's a better answer than your two. Because I really was like, I don't know if there is anything I would want to see. But yes, mm -hmm. I actually, those two are very good answers. And actually, Badger and Skinny Pete were ones that I really was upset. Well, much like you, we didn't get to see... Uh, I mean, we saw, you know, El Camino yeah. gave us a little bit with them, but would have been nice to see what they were up to before we met them in Breaking Bad. Yeah, I, I do think in the Breaking Bad finale, they had the best part. They were just like, that was like an everyone clapped kind of thing when they came. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, with um, so with El Camino, what's interesting is um, Gilligan had gone through a couple different ideas of his conclusions for Jesse, and he toyed with the idea of Jesse ending up incarcerated and at peace, but he had already planned this for the ending of Better Call Saul. By the way, guys, spoiler alert for a show that ended six fucking months ago. Um, uh so um so he decided he wanted to go with a happy ending for jesse and that's why i think a lot of people viewed el camino as unnecessary because vince gilligan had said in like a comic con panel years before that this is what he imagined for jesse and then this is just what he imagined for jesse and it i was so unsurprised when i read that it was originally supposed to be a short a 15 to 20 minute short mm -hmm. but shooting a short is not cost effective let me tell you this reads like a short because you have fake stakes, you have these fake random villains that no one could care about. It's basically an extended and not that good episode of Breaking Bad. 
Uh, but then another thing about it is it lacks any of the levity that like was in present in both of the series, particularly Better Call Saul. Like that's again what made those so watchable. And it's crazy that I can watch like four or five episodes of Breaking Bad in a row. Please do that is an indictment of my productivity. Yes, but um, <laughs> but I I have a hard time getting through El Camino. I think it's a drag. Okay, I've only now I will say this: I've watched El Camino one time mm-hmm. when it came out, but. It was pretty much what I expected. And as such, I enjoyed it because it really is just a coda. Like Mm -hmm. it's not, I wasn't expecting it to be like Jesse getting into hijinks. It was like, we're going to see a quiet epilogue for Jesse Pinkman's character. And like, it would be mean spirited to have Jesse die or go to prison. Like we're going to see Jesse be okay. That's, that's what Jesse's ultimate fate was always going to be. Um, You know, Jesse, sweet Jesse, I would have been just fine had it just been him driving away because mm-hmm. you can make your own conclusions. Yeah. But like Jesse getting to confirmation, like Jesse gets some happiness mm-hmm. was, was nice. And it was pretty much what I expected. Cause like I said, I didn't expect it to be like all of a sudden, like the twins show up cause they're dead, but like, but you know, like there's like yeah. characters like that. Uh, yeah. It was pretty much what I expected. So I, I liked it. But I should, again, like I said, I've only watched it the one time, so not enough to go back and revisit it. I like, I don't want to come across like I hate this or anything, but I think, um, I will say that, I, again, no surprise here. I think the most compelling part was Jesse and Todd. I think that was an incredibly mm-hmm. compelling aspect of it. Um, and I think also that, um, uh, so there are a few things. Um, the color palette, I think, is really off. I think it's really like desaturated and cool and breaking Mm. bad is a notoriously warm show as is better call Saul. And so I think that makes it feel like a bit of a drag. Um, I also just think like it, it is, it's almost kind of the way that breaking bad inherently screwed itself. I know a lot of, not a lot of people. There are some people who think like, Oh, the finale of breaking bad, like they didn't like it because it wrapped everything up too much in a neat little bow. I'm fine with that. I don't need ambiguity all the time. However, there's the problem when you try to create a coda, which is that every single conflict for Jesse, almost every single conflict has been removed. Like it's basically just a race mm. against the clock. And that's why you like introduce these two random petty thugs that Jesse has to get a couple grand from. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. And so like the stakes do not feel high. Like, I think you're right. Like as a coda, it's fine. But it's more just like, wow, Netflix is really just willing to throw its money at this. That's that's nice. Um, I also think just the fact that they had to kind of rush everything, like, you know, Cranston's appearance and it was supposed to be a surprise, and so he didn't shave his head. He's wearing a bald cap, and it's stuff like that that really cheapens it, I think. And so I could have been fine without it. Good for Aaron Paul for getting paid. I would have been fine without it. Oh, and I'm the, I'm the same. Mm-hmm. Like, like I said, I could have been fine with it just being like he went off and – I can make up what happened to him afterwards, but like, I don't mind having it from the creator that he's okay. And it was kind of exactly what I was hoping was going to happen to him. So, yeah. Um, So this is going to transition me into another point and there's, which is, I have a few people listed here of people without whom the shows would not be what they are. And the number one um, that I want to bring up is Kelly Dixon. So she was the lead editor on Breaking Bad and then Better Call Saul until I think the fourth season, after which she passed uh, editing duties over to Skip McDonald. Um, I think people who aren't necessarily film and TV geeks, and by the way, you do not need to be a film and TV geek to enjoy things. Your appreciation does not have prerequisites, but they might not realize how much the editing of both shows complements the acting and the writing. And 
the editing is an equal part of what makes these this a character-driven series. And um, Breaking Bad and, and Better Call Saul, like I said, they're very, very male shows. And I don't say this in a condescending way, but a lot of these male characters are very classically male in that they don't verbalize their feelings very much, if at all. Like, Jimmy slash Saul is the most talkative character by far, but he doesn't actually say what he feels. So you rely on what they're not saying, and that's where your editor comes in. Like, the cuts to their faces, how long they hold their expressions, the timing, the focus, like, it lingers just enough to make you ask a question. Like, one thing I always linger on is the scene at Eladio's Hacienda after the big massacre. There's a split second in which you see Mike possibly aiming the gun at Jesse. Like, he's about to dispatch with Jesse now that that's all done. Mm -hmm. And there's been a big fan question of, did Mike intend to kill Jesse? And it's one of the rare things that Gilligan and co. have never answered. But leaving that shot in was obviously very intentional. So Dixon's editing drove character development. It enhanced the action. It gave the show so many amazing montages. Like, this... Both these series are montage series. Um, yeah. And I think that's part of why El Camino did not work. It didn't have the luster of the other two because Kelly Dixon wasn't involved in that whatsoever. Like Skip McDonald, who would go on to take o take over for her after she left Better Call Saul, like he was the editor on it. And I think on Better Call Saul, he didn't miss a beat. But El Camino, I just feel like it could have used Kelly Dixon's touch. Maybe I'm just telling myself that. Well, and I think, I think um, you know, I think editing, like uh, the way to show, if, again, I think there are a lot of people who don't think they notice things like editing when they're watching stuff. It's invisible. But they 100% yeah. do. Uh, it's like when that clip from the, the Queen movie came out and it was like 8,000 oh. cuts in one scene. And like even people who didn't notice edits were like, this sucks. Like, you know what I mean? God, like, and I want a fucking Oscar it. for editing. Like, I know. I know. What was the one that they just someone had one about cocaine bear too where like it was really weirdly edited where like the things don't match and like it's weird uh which i mean it's cocaine bear so i'm not as worried about yeah. something like that you know what i'm saying but um yeah i'm not expecting oscar caliber nor was i out of the queen movie really but you know what i mean like yeah. i think that's one of those things that people don't realize just how much editing can mean to something it, 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 even people who are like quote unquote like normie television or film viewers mm -hmm. don't don't Think they realize that but they 100 are noticing that while they're watching because it's such a subtle thing yeah it's it's both like the most invisible and the most impactful part of that series um mm -hmm. and that's why i'm really glad that kelly dixon served as like kind of the host of the podcast and stuff because like people need to know her name people need she needs to be just as much of a household name as vince gilligan and peter gould mm -hmm. um so two other mvps dave porter and thomas golovich i i might be pronouncing that last name wrong um but so is it porter no um so <laughs> dave porter's score is widely varied um you know to quote forgetting sarah marshall which i think forever changed the way we talk about tv scores it's a little bit of the ominous tones um but he <laughs> he is very good at giving everyone like a little light motif like the heisenberg light motif the dum 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 yeah yeah um but he got to spread his wings a lot more in better call saul like there's a piece of music like just look it up it's on spotify it's on apple music and it's called walls by dave porter and that is from the montage in which chuck is tearing apart his home and he uses a lot more um like less synthesizer more like there's some keys there's um brass there's this like yeah. absolute oh my god 
it is one of the most emotional bits of music. Even something like the, um, you know, the piece, which is just a variation on the theme in the penultimate episode of Breaking Bad, uh, Dimple Pinch Neat. It's one of those things that, like the editing, it's kind of invisible at first when he's leaving and when all the SWAT team is surrounding the bar, you do not notice until the very last five seconds, like, oh, it's the theme song. Like, I think Dave Porter's score is brilliant and very varied. Yeah, I, uh, you know, and, and, and that's so, you know, obviously, like when I talked about like, well, I, you know, I have my choice for like, I, you know, my favorite sort of songs that uses in this show because Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul were very good at song choices. Mm -hmm. But like, this is why I wish I were better at like talking about score stuff on my show, because I can appreciate a great score. I just never know how to talk about them. It's like, it's like, yeah, like there's, there's brass and there's uh harmonica, you know, like that under the harmonica that doesn't, that was like tango and cash in the eighties, but you know what I mean? Like there was scores. Um, but it really is one of those things where if you have a, a score that it can't be obtrusive, that's what I like when you can pull that trick off when mm -hmm. it's like you have, I guess that's not true either because some of my favorite scores are like goblin score from Suspiria and stuff, which is like in your face. But like, if you can pull one off that is like this inobtrusive, mm -hmm. but you are noticing it the whole time without noticing, you're noticing it until like it takes front and center. Yeah. And I, it's an amazing trick. I think Porter Proust throughout the two series um, that like, I mean, Breaking Bad's it, his scores there are a lot more inobtrusive and, you know, a lot more just like, the invisible score but and then you know something like walls is truly an instrumentalist score and it mm -hmm. is conspicuous and so i like that he can play very effectively in both um so thomas thomas golubich uh so he served as the music supervisor and so it he was responsible for selecting a lot of a lot of those tunes that we hear and um you know, some absolutely iconic things. I've said this before on Twitter, and I kind of, I think I've calmed down on this, but I used to find it like my one criticism about Breaking Bad, which was like, cue montage of bad things happening while a pleasant little tune plays. It does that a lot. <laughs> Yes. It does that a lot. And I used to find it a bit more annoying. And then I realized, like, I'm probably just trying to too hard to find fault in my favorite show. Um, <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't think they over-egg the pudding that much in retrospect. Um, what I think is great is, like, you have, like, they also used a lot of different styles of songs for that. Like, you had, you know, Pick Yourself Up by Nat King Cole, which I think that might be one of the most iconic music cues in the series. Yeah. You know, well, neo-Nazis are fucking stabbing someone's in depth with a sharp <laughs> toothbrush. But you also have a lot of like underground shitty rap over Jesse's meth parties and they're equally memorable. So, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. But before I say anything here, I want to rewind for a second. Did you say over egg the pudding? Yes. Is that like a Canadian thing? I think it might be a Britishism. I've heard a dance judge. Okay. Use it. I love it. I just never heard that before. It's like I, you said it. I was like, did you just say over egg the pudding? <laughs> you know what? I, I, use it, using it. I use it a lot with my dance students when I tell them like, you're giving me too much and they don't get it either because they're like, pudding doesn't have eggs in it. And I'm like, nothing I make has eggs in it. I don't know. Um, I like it. I like it. I knew exactly what you meant when you said it. It just kind of caught me. So, okay. So, I am like, I think from being somebody who the first time I saw Reservoir Dogs and you watch someone's getting, you're getting caught off to stuck in the middle. I've always been a fan of music that's incongruous with what you're seeing mm -hmm. on screen. Like one of my favorite examples is uh, 
the scene in um, Layer Cake where there's like a brutal beating mm-hmm. to Duran Duran's Ordinary World. Yeah. Uh, but I it's love just, that. I think trick. that's almost a trope at this point, or it is a trope. That's the say. thing. Yeah. It is. It 100% is. Um, but I'll be li- I'd be lying if I said the like lizard part of my brain isn't always like fuck yeah when there's like a good one. And there are examples of it being done better than others, and so that's the thing mm-hmm. is like it's a trope, and so there are going to be shitty examples of it. But like I think the right ones are the ones that make you rethink that think those songs. Like when I was in when I was sixteen, I was in a large modern dance number that was set to "Stuck in the Middle" with you. It was very cute, um, but. I, because I was a little edgelord, I was the only one in my group who had seen Reservoir Dogs. And so <laughs> I was just like, I can't do this, man. I can't do this. Yeah, right. Like, uh, so two last MVPs, uh, Sharon Bialy and Sherry Rhodes. So they were the, uh, Sharon Bialy was the casting director for the two series and Sherry Rhodes, who I think has passed away. Oh God, I hope I, sh- I should have researched this because I don't want to say that an innocent woman is dead. Um, but she was the New Mexico casting director. So this franchise ha- is one of, in my opinion, the most well-cast franchises on TV, uh, both in terms of the leads and like the local day players, which is why I want to shout out Rhodes. Like, again, like he has this. So, for the leads, Gilligan has this penchant for working with primarily comedic actors. Like, and we all know Cranston is a well trained dramatic actor, but he is, you know, he is known as a comedic actor. You've got Odenkirk, who not only is more of a comedic actor, he's really more of a writer than, than an actor, or he was up until this point. Um, and, you know, Michael McKeon, Dean Norris, uh, Stephen Michael Quesada, who played Gomez, he's a stand-up comedian. Like, um, and I had to I have to say, I don't think he's a very good stand-up comedian. Like, I think he's so good <laughs> as Gomez, and then his his stand-up comedy is just kind of like, my life is so annoying. Like I'm like, oh <laughs> Gomez, you kind of suck. Like, it's it's the kind of comedy that you can see Hank Schrader enjoying. Um, but um but like he knows exactly where their dramatic chops lie so like and then bringing in these little character actors like mark margolis uh and stuff and creating iconic characters um you know going from strength to strength but i think Rhodes deserves her flowers because again you've got these earnest little normies throughout the world like people like skylar's divorce lawyer or the copy store clerk in better call saul or the clerk at the gas station like you know it feels so genuine Oh, I I love uh, Bill Bill Burr oh. as Kubi. Like I'm a huge Bill Burr fan. I know that he could have like there's old problematic shit that he's done, but he's also one of those comedians that if you see things now, he's like definitely somebody who's grown and matured and like oh I understand yeah, I love that, his outlook. Yeah, I love Bill Burr, but uh, you don't think again choosing like I know Bill Burr definitely Kubi was more of a comic relief sort of character in the show. No, he's someone I wish had come back, like because Hugh got so much play in Better Call Saul. I think it was like a scheduling thing. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I bet that ties into something later on in the show. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but uh, um, you choosing, you know, Bob Odenkirk. I because I fully expected Saul because I knew that Bob Odenkirk was in the show. Before I, like I said, I came back season four and he showed up. I'm trying to remember, he was he season end of season two is when you met Saul in Breaking Bad, right? Yes. Mid season two. Yeah. So I I knew that he was coming and I was expecting Saul to be like nothing but comic relief. But like and and for the most part, that is what Saul is in Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. But he gets a few serious moments or a few genuine moments. And um I always love when like a casting director can look at a character and act a, uh play someone against type you know like see that that will work and um 
Yeah, Breaking Bad really does that a lot because, I mean, again, look at Cranston. I know Cranston is a, like a great actor, but he had just come off of Malcolm in the Middle. And Seinfeld, as, yeah. Yeah, as as like goofy, you know. And so like, it, yeah, it's the casting on this show. Like, I it's one of those shows where I can't, I can't imagine pulling an actor, even in the most minor characters out and replacing them with somebody else and having it be the same. You know, yeah. like this, it's it's like a no notes sort of situation with mm-hmm. with the casting on this show. Yeah. So uh, speaking of casting, first I, I will get past this one point because I'm worried that once I start talking about Kim Wexler, I will barely be able to stop. So I will gloss <laughs> over my one point. Like I'm a big fan of Justice for Skylar, um, but I, I don't even feel like we need to touch on that mainly because I feel like everything of value has been said. Fans were assholes to Skylar. Fans were assholes to Anna Gunn. This show is about people's capacity to be terrible. I think we can agree that Skylar is not a great person, but she is not as bad of a person as her husband. Conclusion. Um, I'm a huge fan of justice for Marie, though. And that's the thing I don't think people talk about. Like, Marie is a character who is treated like she is worse than the meth lords, money launderers, and murderers, when really her worst crime, aside from her actual crimes of shoplifting, is being annoying and being kind I of a I love the bitch. shoplifting thing, too, though. Yeah. Like, like, I love that about Marie. And that's, like, you know... <sighs> Even like Breaking Bad ended 10 years ago. And I would say even like the way we talk about mental illness has evolved even since 10 years ago. Like it's weird that no one talks about Marie's shoplifting as obvious symptoms of serious mental illness, which is why she yeah. relapses into it when her husband is treating her like shit after getting fucking shot in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like <laughs> Betsy Brandt is so good at playing a character who is so full of pathos and projects that pain in the most obnoxious ways. And like how fucking broken she is after Hank dies and she picks it up in the Better Call Saul finale as someone who like yes a bit of time has passed and she's a bit put together but you can see this woman has not been the same you know uh, her Brilliant. her performance was like heartbreaking mm-hmm. in that that Better Call cuz the thing is look <laughs> these these, sh- these this show is a show about gray areas you know what mm-hmm. i mean like even like look i walter is a wretched person but like a fascinating character to the point where like mm-hmm. i don't mind if people are like i like walter like you don't like walter as a person you like walter as a character you know like you you i want to like, know what he's doing you know <laughs> <laughs> and and then like marie um everybody in this show there's like a gray area with everybody and i like that because everybody is nuanced you mm-hmm. know what i mean every person in the world outside of like you know i mean you point to like the most evil people on earth that but like uh marie i was just i was so sad for her because again i'm like I I kind of back and forth on like what kind of ending I wanted for Slip and Jimmy or Saul. And it depended on which version I was talking about mm. the ending that I wanted to see. If it was Saul, hey, Saul's a shithead. Throw him in jail. If it's if it's Jimmy, Jimmy's a sweet guy who just never lived up to his brother's shadows and his brother's shadow and and like a harmless enough schemer as Jimmy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Until you get towards those later episodes where it's like, we know there's really not a lot of redeemable things to this. Guy. And like, but like you bring, you're still a little conflicted in that final episode where it's like, God, I, I, Odenkirk's great. But like, then you get Marie in there and you see like, and I uh, granted Saul really didn't have anything to do. But you, just directly with Hank. But you death, need someone to like, prosecute. And again, this is where I feel like anyone who says this is pro cop and pro war on drugs. Like the fact that, they needed someone to prosecute is such an indictment of the legal system. And like, 
I also think bringing Skylar back was actually, when you think about it, more satisfying than bringing back, uh, or sorry, bringing Marie back was much more uh, satisfying than bringing Skylar back because like Mm -hmm. Skylar, it would feel like dragging her through the mud again. Um, you know, Marie, and you, you believe that she would want to get the fuck out of Dodge even after being exonerated or whatever. Um, you know, like Marie, and I will say, uh, as like, I love Gomez. I think he's one of the most perfect supporting characters, but I think it's so sad that you only find out in the better, like in the series finale of another show that Gomez had three children. And like anything, yeah. anything about Gomez's life and you find it out in like his kind of posthumous like little like tribute. It's like, oh, poor Gomi. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was the comic relief. Yeah. He was the comic sidekick. Yeah, he was- and he was doomed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like I would say like one of the Better Call Saul foils to Marie is like um, Howard Hamlin is the character that you spend the first, say, three seasons saying you think you know who this guy is and mm-hmm. you slowly start to see all the pain that is underneath and the steps that he is taking to hold everything together and how desperate he is and for the most part Howard is incredibly successful at holding it together and even like in his last scene he says like I'll bounce back I'll be okay and then he never gets a chance to be like I think he and Marie are two of the most tragic characters like Marie because like Marie because she has to go on living and Howard because he doesn't get to well and see for me like Howard is one of those characters that I the whole time was like they went to pains to show and like look inherently i hate rich yeah lawyer types yeah so like there's a part of me it's like man fuck this guy but like at the same time like scenes they showed with him he's a little pompous and a little but like i always kind of gathered that like howard's not like a bad person Mm -hmm. at all like howard howard genuinely just wants like he never really does anything super shitty throughout the series of the show other than being like a yuppie rich guy, you know what I mean? Which is, again is not not enough to meet the fate that he met at the end of this. Again, like, like Marie, like yes. he's he he has lived he commits the crime of being obnoxious, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, and like you know, watching Saul and Kim like ruin his life, yeah. and like it really does it. Like, it's really such a punch in the gut because they get you on his side and then yank that rug out from under yeah. as hard as possible when it happens. And a, a character that I can't believe we haven't brought up yet, Nacho, like I really feel like they spend the whole, which like Canadian actor, yay, Michael Mando. Um, they really spend the entire series building to one of these characters is going to kill themselves and one of these characters is going to get murdered. And it is absolutely not the one that you think. Like it is the opposite. Like I genuinely thought they were building for Howard to kill himself himself and, and mm-hmm. like I, I don't think anyone saw nacho killing himself um and like because he really is like a very tragic example of i know the trope term is like the butt monkey like everything <laughs> happens to him and he is he is the one person that you feel happy for when they die because it's like that was his only fucking way out of this man nacho is actually my favorite character in better call saul mm-hmm. i loved i I grew to love that character so much over season one and then spent the rest of the series knowing he's going to die Mm -hmm. because he's not mentioned in Breaking Bad. So it's like some point he's going to die. So every season finale, I was like on the edge of my seat because I'm like, is this the one where they're going to kill Nacho? And uh, yeah, didn't make it any easier when it happened. Um, Nacho's, yeah, Nacho probably ended up being my runaway favorite character in Breaking in in Better Call Saul. It, so it wasn't until like a little later that I realized the kind of creepiness of Breaking Bad that throughout Breaking Bad um 
Saul never knows if Lalo is alive or not. Mike never tells yeah. him that Lalo is dead. And so Saul like does spend all of Breaking Bad and beyond like looking over his shoulder, not knowing what has become of Lalo. And I can't remember, but I don't think he knows if Nacho is alive or not either. Um, you don't see anything of him getting the news, you know? Right. Now that you say that, I'm trying to see. I thought there was like a moment where he found out in in break in Better Call Saul. But you know what? You're right. I yeah. don't think there was any. There's sort the of moment like there's the moment when Lalo's in his apartment, when Lalo tells him that Nacho betrayed him. But not, I don't even think anyone knows or I mean, the people who are there know that Nacho is dead at this point. But no, I don't think we ever see him learn that nacho is dead i mean we also uh, don't know if, if his body was ever discovered or whatever like we don't know what the solomonkas did with him but well because wait in 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 breaking bad when when he's introduced as any saying it's ignacio like yeah. it was ignacio that yeah and yeah. he also used the line and again these are just things that like vince gilligan like remember like oh yeah we should do something with that because he also says in the in the episode did lalo send you and like yeah, yeah. yes so um okay so I'm going to talk about Kim. I don't even have You're notes right. written about Kim because <laughs> what I have is my heart. I'm just a girl standing in front of a webcam asking Rhea Seahorn to love her. Now, um, I think like, and Kim is almost a Jesse type situation. Like, I think it's interesting because Better Call Saul sounds like it was written both a lot more strictly and a lot more loosely, like a lot more strictly in the fact that, like they had to have kind of like a Bible record keeper to make sure they didn't contradict anything in Breaking Bad to make sure that like everything still lined up timeline wise and they weren't, you know, accidentally contradicting themselves. But they also like Vince Gilligan said, like, we want to give ourselves the freedom to take this anywhere. Like we don't know exactly how, like, I don't know what's going to happen yet. And one of those things is that they didn't write Kim to be as big of a character initially until they saw the chemistry that Ray Seahorn had with, um, with Bob Odenkirk. And I think, and first of all, I think it's lovely that they're like best friends and go to concerts together. Like I'm normally not one of those people. I, I'm, I think it's cringy to ship real people, but there was a thing of them going to like a strokes concert together. I'm like, Oh, they should be together. Like <laughs> Bob Odenkirk, who is very happily married for a long time with like adult children. But it's like, no, no, you should, you should marry Ray Seahorn. Because it would make me happy, but like, is she also married? I think she is. I yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, which uh, I I want to say like her real name is something like Barbara or something, and she like raised her middle name, and she's like, yeah, her, the the name just didn't suit me. I'm like, absolutely not. Like, um, <laughs> but no, she, like so. I think to me, what I love about Kim is that she and Jimmy again, like you have a foil type situation. Of, mm -hmm. um, you know, Jimmy is struggling so hard, like he is carrying around the stigma of who everyone thinks he is, which is a bad person. And he is trying so hard to defeat that. But he just like, in his moments of weakness, he becomes the person everyone thinks he is, because that's easier than trying to be a good person. Kim is the opposite. Everyone sees Kim as this good, virtuous person. And it's like, you know, I love that they give her this backstory of having this mother who is, you know, an irresponsible drunk and Kim seems to resent her. But also there's that scene where she shoplifts the jewelry and her mom is kind of like, I got your number. Like, I know that you have, I know that you're not this little Pris. I know that you have this bad side. And so with Kim, like her true self is like, you know, everyone sees her like, she yeah she and jimmy are the opposite everyone sees jimmy as a fuck up and he's trying really hard to be a good person everyone sees kim as this virtuous person and she has this temptation to just like you know but what would it be like to just give to just 
be bad once in a while. You know, that's why she saves the stopper from the tequila and stuff, because it is a fucking thrill for her. Well, I think that also plays into the fact that you 90% of the early seasons when you see her, she's smoking a cigarette. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm saying this is somebody who used to smoke cigarettes. I'm not saying smoking cigarettes means that you have a flawed character. But typically in writing in movies and things, especially when we're talking 2023, when smoking is no longer like cool to do anymore, like that's that's like a character. It isn't written as a character flaw in a character, I feel like. And so like the fact that like this sweet virtuous person is ch like a chain smoker mm -hmm. uh sort of plays into that even less in like a subtle manner you know what i mean mm -hmm. and again i'm not saying that like if you smoke there's a problem with character i smoked for years uh but it was always one of those things that always strikes me as weird when you see like a clean cut virtuous character smoking cigarettes you don't see that yeah and it like it's I find uh, the only other example I can think of, and it is a very similar character thing. Have you ever seen the movie? It's like 20 years old at this point, but 13. It's got Evan Rachel Wood and Holly Hunter. I have not, but I remember. I know what it is. I know what you're talking about. It was like about. one of those kind of like moral panic, kids are growing up too fast movies, because in case yeah. the public has missed it, we've always been concerned about kids growing up too fast. Um, but Evan Rachel Wood's <laughs> character, it at the beginning of that movie, like before she goes bad, and this is like a middle schooler, she is seen occasionally smoking. And you can tell that it's because she is fucking ready to burst. Like she is carrying so much around with her and she just needs this one tiny little outlet. And so I think it's really similar with uh, with Kim. So um, yeah. yeah, I I love Kim so much. I also think like her fate is so interesting to me because um, again, it's all about punishment, I think. And so much of what Kim does is she feels like, like, whereas Jimmy is always looking for ways to get out of punishment and, like, he manages to evade his fate for so long. And really, I feel like he could have evaded his fate if he just tried a little harder. Re I really oh, do. Yeah. Um, and yet, Kim is the opposite. She kind of comes to this realization, like, nobody is going to punish me. I need to punish myself. Which is why, like, it's, you know... She can't turn herself in or whatever, but she's going to take the one thing from her that she doesn't feel she deserves, which is her job. And she damns herself to this horrible mundane life. And then on top of it, you've got, you know, Cheryl Hamlin owning her for life now. And like, and she seems so fine with it because she's like, well, you know, no one else was going to punish me. So I'm punishing me. Well, and like her performance in season six in particular, like I love Kim throughout the series, but watching kim to use a term really break bad you know mm -hmm. what i mean like watching that character because it almost felt like you know i didn't know where the show was going in the end mm -hmm. you know what i mean and it almost felt like maybe it was going to be like she somehow ends up being like worse than worse than jimmy in the end yeah. but like they i'm glad they pulled back on that but like that's partially not partially that's largely in due part to to her performance there as like once she ramped up the like um the prank kind of war yes and like her like bad side really coming out mm -hmm. like i didn't know where it was going i had no idea it was going and and really it went in in the most logical direction mm -hmm. that it could have gone for kim's character but i wasn't sure where it was going for a minute there her breakdown on that bus like i know that's an easy thing to say mm -hmm. but that is one of the best actors moments of the whole franchise mm -hmm. yeah Oh yeah, yeah. It's um, I could watch that like over and over. I mean, I couldn't because it makes you too sad. But um, okay. <laughs> so 
we're at the lightning round. Bow, bow, bow. That's, that's, <laughs> that's my shock jock voice. You know, if pretty good. If I could it's, invest it's more good. in this show, there would have been a soundboard a long time ago. <laughs> um, okay, so Eric, who is the most terrifying villain in the entire Breaking Badiverse? Okay, so like I want to say Lalo Salamanca, but but at the end of the day, it's Gus. And I'll tell you the one part that pushes Gus over the top for me. First of all, you know, Gus has that sort of sociopathic coolness to his character where there's like nothing there. There's just mm -hmm. nothing there at certain points. Lalo seems like Lalo seems like he'd be pretty fun to have a beer with if he was like not going to kill. You. Oh, my you God. Know what I mean? yeah. Lalo seems like he'd be really fun to hang out with, super charming. But for me, what really pushes Gus over the edge is the scene where he slits Victor's throat in front of like that is one of the most the cold unbroken like, eye contact it's like yeah. so devoid of humanity it's so sudden and shocking and calculated that like at the end of the day uh gus would be the one that and it's not just because at the end of the day gus ended up taking down lalo it's because gus is there's that um you know i think the most reaction you saw from gus is when not think it's it's the moment that he knew he was going to die you know <gasps> that's like the most yeah. Yeah, that's but like, yeah, no, that's it's a Gus, it's yeah. Gus, no question. So I actually did say Lalo, and I was going back between him and him and Gus. I will also say uh, my husband's not here, but when I was going over my lightning round questions with him, he thought Hector, which I still I'm going to say bullshit on that because like <laughs> Hector has too many loyalties. Um, mm -hmm. but I think he referred specifically to, and I agree, this was a terrifying scene: the cold open where Hector holds his nephew's head underwater. Um, he yeah, Ooh, that that is. And Mark Margolis, despite not being Latino at all. Um, <laughs> brilliant. Um, so the reason I ultimately went with Lalo is because I think like he is a man who is as cunning and competent as Gus, but also not as concerned about things like covering his tracks and stuff. And so it's like a less careful version of Gus. And um, <laughs> like, you know, one thing Gus, you know, Gus would slit a man's throat and hold eye contact with you. He, however, would not um, just burst through a ceiling and kill a clerk at a money at a like money wire transfer place. And that's where like Lalo is basically Gus without the shave. He's got a lot of the smarts. He's one of the most resourceful villains, but he has he is a little more willing to go jazz style than classical. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I get that too. It was a really tough one for me. I really did have to think it through. And then I remembered the, the throat slitting eye contact. And I was like, no, it's Gus. Mm -hmm. It's Gus. Yeah. Okay. So who's a character that they brought back for Better Call, Better Call Saul who they should have not brought back? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I would. And I'm, I'm, I know this might be not, but I don't think I would choose any. And the reason is this, with it being a prequel, it makes sense that they would bring them back. And I think the closest I would get mm -hmm. would be Walter and Jesse, because those two, as we said earlier, felt the most fan servicey. But like, also, they absolutely look, if you're doing a prequel to Breaking Bad that reaches up to right around that timeline, you got to have them in there at some point. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like it's their, their appearance felt fan servicey. So I guess, I guess if I had to pick one, it would be Walter and Jesse. Yeah. Like, I don't think they needed to be in it. Um, yeah. So I, I've already said Tyrus and Victor. Um, another one I will say, and this is really minor, but 
Ira, like that one is more like it's not just fan servicey, it's nerd fan servicey. So Ira, for those who don't remember, he is um the guy who runs the Vominos Pest uh racket. And he comes back in like I think the third season, or it's the fourth season, because it's when Saul's not practicing and he's getting into like petty theft and stuff. And that's where Ira comes in and he just plays this bit part and leaves. And like on one hand, it's kind of a cool way to show, like, oh, this is how Saul's making his contacts in the um in the outside world. But I think it's that Ira was so minor, incredibly minor in Breaking Bad that I think you'd have to be a real fucking nerd to remember. And so it means kind of nothing. Like you could have shown me anyone and I would still say, oh, it's good because it shows how Jimmy is making his contacts in uh, in the underground crime world. So, okay, who's a character that you think they should have brought back who they didn't? Uh, you know what? I'm going to stick with because they brought so many back. Honestly, the main one for me is Kubi because I like Bill Burr so much. Yeah. Uh, obviously, like in an ideal world, Walt Jr., but it is him. You could pull that fantasy off with with um, Aaron Paul as as Jesse, mm-hmm. kind of. It does not. You can't have a prequel to Breaking Bad. <laughs> He's just Bad got this have... like Cat Stevens beard. Like, <laughs> you... I'm 12 years no. old. It's like Dewey Cox, like in, in Walk Hard, where he's got to keep reminding you that he's 12. <laughs> oh, the wrong kid died. Um, so <laughs> I would. I'm going more for like novelty sake. I think there actually would have been a lot of opportunity to bring back the Schwartzes as maybe say a care okay. a, a client of Hamlin, Hamlin McGill, or something like that. Um, and then this name might not mean much to you but james edward Kilkelly, aka jimmy in and out that's a character i would love to see jimmy <laughs> making jimmy mcgill making his uh kind of early connections with i would have loved to see a little bit from him yes it would be gimmicky and fan servicey but like you know it's kind of like the way when he first opens his Saul goodman practice that he you see him um serving spooge would love to see him make the connection with jimmy in and out as well <laughs> that's a good one too i i didn't know if a minor because i almost felt like any minor character i chose like that even felt weird picking kubi would have been like your beef with ira being a recurring character coming back you know that it felt fan service okay so, so like, ah. here's my distinction with ira he's so minor that you barely notice he has a name i think they say his <laughs> okay. name once in breaking bad and i don't think they say it at all in better call saul whereas at least okay. jimmy in and out is a pretty iconic character name um okay so which character death got to you the most? Okay, so, you know, this is a show that has some... This is a tough one for me because you have Hank, you have Mike. Mm. Howard's was awful, but ultimately, for me, it was... And I can't, again, I do, can't believe we did spend so little time talking about it. was Nacho Varga. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I grew to love that character in season one, and I spent the entire rest of Break It, Better Call Saul dreading mm-hmm. his death because... You know he's Michael screwed. Mando yeah. was so good. Michael, he was so good in that role. Um, and, like, the whole bit with his dad is so heartbreaking. Oh, my God, and, like, yeah. Uh, no, it was Nacho for sure. Yeah. No question. Nacho was the one that got me the most. Um, I would say Andrea. Um, yeah. yeah, because this is like this is the one character you can really say did nothing to deserve no. anything. <laughs> and like, yes, I mean, in a, in a series that is all about the drug trade and a lot. Well, it's not the central theme. One somewhat dominant theme in it is how like the actions of Walter affect everyone around him, um, mm-hmm. you know, and like. So, of course, you have to have an innocent die. But, like, we've already seen a literal fucking child get shot on screen. Um, 
And I just, yeah, Andrea was just so unceremonious. And it was like, it's that her death was used to hurt Jesse. And so on one hand, it makes a lot of sense. But on the other hand, it still just feels the saddest to me. I think the only reason that Andrea's for me, I remember when Andrea's happened being like, it started to feel almost like torture porny, what they were doing to Jesse's character at that point that I was like, come on, like another one, Uh (laughs) you know? Yes. Okay. So who's someone now there's not a lot of people that didn't die, but who's someone that you think should have died? Okay. Honestly, this one, I came up, I, I could not think of one because here's why look, you pick your choices. Like, it would have to be somebody who really, really meant something. Mm-hmm. And that would leave you like Kim or Skylar or Walt Jr. But also those would have felt like deaths for the sake of shock value because Hank made the most sense as the person closest to Walt mm-hmm. to die because they're, they were on a collision course. You know what I mean? Yep. But I feel like any and every death that happens in this show feels earned. Whereas I feel like if you take a character, I mean, you could because I mean, I don't is there are there any like really vile villains who did not get their comeuppance that I'm forgetting in this show. I feel like all well, no, of them the whole thing is that every Salamanca has been wiped out. Um, yes. And, and uh, the, 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 I'm a blank on her name that gets the rice in at the end, you know, like that was yeah. so satisfying. Um, but like, yeah, for me, I really, can't, this is one where I was like, I really can't think of a character that I'm like, this character should have died because every death makes sense. And I feel like anybody that I would have mentioned, would have been like that walking dead issue where we don't have anything else to write about. So we're going to kill a character to shock you yeah. because this is like all we've got in our pocket now. I personally think they should have killed Maude Flanders. Um, no. So, okay. <laughs> I am having to have my whole nuts out on this. Um, it's not so much that I think they, sh- they should have killed this character, but I would say if they would have, it would have had incredible impact. And that is Skylar. Um, okay. So, and uh, I'm going to give some credit to, again, friend of the show, Andrew Jupin, um, who, like, back when this show, like, was in its last couple episodes, they did a special episode of We Hate Movies just kind of reacting to it. And Andrew had said, like, wouldn't it be, like, fucking cool if, like, you know, it ends in, like, they've gone into hiding, Walter is, you know, they've got, they're assuming these new identities, and they're in a hotel, and Skylar's in the bathroom or whatever, and Walter's trying to reason, like, it's fine, Skylar, we're going to be fine. Like, Skylar, Skylar, and he opens up the door, and there's Skylar fucking like Kool-Aid red bathtub um and what it would be is that it would be the ultimate driving home of by the way this thing that Walter did was all for nothing and and for him even like what if he kept going after that um so I think like that's a thing they could have done and could have pulled off would be killing Skylar I, I yeah and I I like I said I Okay, I guess in in a, in a scenario like that, if we're talking like the end of the show, sure. Um, I'm just thinking is like the show went on, like if they would have had like a end of season four death, that it would have been like Skylar that we kill off. Mm-hmm. Like, but I do like that reasoning. Yeah. I still don't think I could think of anybody personally. I don't think there's anybody that I would like. That's a no note situation for me as far as like their deaths in the show. Yeah. Okay. So, what is your favorite musical moment in the whole franchise? honestly it's baby blue in the end i love like i mean crystal blue persuade there's so many good ones but um and it's partially because i love badfinger and i love that song to death but like i i i associate that song with the end it's a perfect song for the end like the the i guess i got what i deserve like as he's dying like yeah yeah well and it's great it's great and it ends in a love song to his his baby blue and like i didn't okay Call me an idiot. Many people have. Um, but 
The fact that the meth is called blue sky meth and it took me until 10 years after the show to realize, oh, wait, his wife, he calls his wife Sky. Uh-huh. Yeah. And like even fucking Saul says it, reminds you of a big, beautiful blue sky. Like, um, <laughs> so mine is Pick Yourself Up by Nat King Cole, followed quickly by the montage to the Peace Walls. But um, so I've said before that um, the... Uh, Antipenultimate episode, Ozymandias, is like probably the most perfect hour of television yeah. in the history of television. However, if someone were to ask me what is your favorite episode, your most enjoyed episode of Breaking Bad, it is not that. It is the season five episode, Gliding Overall, which is the episode where Hank finds out while on the shitter that Walter is Heisenberg. <laughs> so much happens in that episode. Yeah. You cram it in so much. Weird lack of Jesse in the episode. There's like one scene with him. But, um, and there is the incredible montage of the prison shankings, including a human getting burned alive, which is one of my biggest fears in life. I mean, it's a pretty reasonable thing to be afraid of. Um, <laughs> but um, God, what an amazing montage. And just the, like, the way it goes with the sound of his ticking watch. I love that. I love that musical moment. Um, and being a tap dancer, I danced to a lot of Nat King Cole and... That's one that I can't hear now and not think of people getting shanked with toothbrushes. <laughs> that's a good, that, that's a, congratulations to the uh, music supervisors for doing that. Yeah, like, that's it's impressive. Absolutely. Okay, so who are your top three characters in the whole franchise? Mike, Nacho, and Saul. That was a pretty easy one. Awesome. So for me, also Mike, uh, Kim, and Todd. Oh, oh, that's an interesting choice. I, I, he's the one character that I wish had been introduced earlier. And, you know, it's yeah, it's really crazy how both these shows actually cycle through big bads. Like, there's a lot of big bads mm -hmm. in the show. You've got Tuco, you got Gus, you got the cartel. Like, it's it's awesome. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I love like I love Todd. Yeah. Todd is a tremendous. I mean, I love Walt. I almost picked Walter because yeah. I do love Walter. Mm -hmm. I Walter is a fascinating character. Um. But and like Kim too, like if I, that was a tough. Actually, you know what? It was harder than I thought because they were like yeah. I, was, I was like I like had Kim Walt. I had like it narrowed down to like six or seven, and like uh, eventually had to start cutting them yeah. out. You know what I mean? And and ended up on those three. But uh, my husband immediately went to Gus, which it makes sense. A lot of people would say Gus, but then very quickly also said Howard, which I thought was very sweet. Um, yeah, my husband adores Howard. Um, I think <laughs> I think he just like his jaw dropped when Howard died. Um, yeah. so, um, uh, now this, I love talking about minor and supporting characters. Who's your favorite minor kind of bit character? Huel, for yeah. sure. Huel. His, he has such a pointy head. I love his head. <laughs> like, I like that the last time you see him is just him waiting in that room. Like that's yeah. it. Like you never know what happens to him beyond that. And he's still waiting in face. it. Um, well, there is a throwaway line um, from my fav favorite minor character, which is Francesca. Um, you know, I, I think she's wonderful in Breaking Bad alone, but then I really love that in Better Call Saul, it's like, let's give her a bit of a backstory about how she starts out as this wide-eyed idealist and then just slowly yeah. gets sucked into the Saul and hates <laughs> her fucking life. Um, but she does have a throwaway line about how because the DEA kept him under false pretenses, he got off. And so, like, we okay. get to imagine that Huel had a good life after that. Yeah, good. Yeah. Good for Huel. I missed that. I must have missed that line or I don't. Wait, see, was that earlier in the show? 
Uh, it's in like the kind of last couple episodes when we're like all black and white and. Uh, oh, yeah. okay. I I missed that when it was on then. Yeah, it's um, it, it's because that's when you also find out that like Skylar took a plea deal and stuff, and they still think Pinkman's in Mexico. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, and I remember that. I just missed the Huel part. I yeah. guess. Um. All right. So. Um. Oh, and there's another minor character that I I know she has a name. Um, but I don't know it, and I was too like lazy to go through the wiki and look it up. But the Poyos Hermanos manager. Now she's someone I wish had come back in Better Call Saul as well. But it, it's natural that you know someone who, who is a fast food manager is probably not going to be the fast food manager four years from now because she's working a different retail management job or whatever. But she's so humorless and takes her job so seriously, and is just having to deal with Walter being a psycho in her restaurant all the time. <laughs> but like as someone who you know, like I've worked in fast food before, and there is that person who. Like, I'm going to take this job really seriously because, like, all that is standing between me and homelessness or me having to go back to working at fucking Claire's is this job. Yeah. And I'm taking right. this job seriously. Like, sir, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Like, you just see, like, the sadness in her. And, like, yeah, I <laughs> I love her. And then also, um, because he's come up on this podcast before, um, Mark Proch as Daniel Wormald. Um, mm. Again, Hollywood needs more weird little guys. <laughs> um there is also like again this is more of a word of god thing because um and he's again he's mentioned in that phone call scene but remember when he's talking about the car wash doesn't work because the car wash doesn't have a danny danny works at the laser tag <laughs> vince gilligan said that his wormald is danny oh really yes there's nothing in the show that <laughs> indicates that but vince gilligan has said that he's the danny <laughs> right. I see is that on the podcast is that where you heard this uh, I believe so yes okay yeah. maybe I do need to tune into that one it's it's really good and the episodes are actually really short um it's it's honestly they give so much technical information about everything you find out like how this person was cast and stuff like it's not just a bunch of like showbiz people having a good time and talking shit like the they get so technical and kelly dixon is really good at keeping everyone on topic like and i'm a big yeah. commentary on dvds guys so oh, i would yeah. love that dvd commentary was my only friend in high school um i love that. okay so if there was one person in breaking better better call Saul for whom you would want a different fate good or bad who would it be you know I, I, I guarantee everyone listening at home thinks that thinks I'm going to say Nacho here, but mm -hmm. honestly, it would be Mike. I just wanted Mike to get older with Kaylee. I wanted yeah. Mike to see Kaylee grow up. Yeah, that's oh, that's such a sad one. Um, so weirdly, like with Kim, as much as I think the way things ended for her was brilliant, like in a way, and again, grew up Catholic, she's kind of living in a purgatory. And, you know, she's like, she's left in this limbo of this horrible mundane life and Cheryl Hamlin like fucking owns her. But like, it would have, I would have liked to either see Kim like, you know, find a way to push herself back into law or whatever, or more likely to fully descend into this life of crime or whatever. And to go like one polar way. I, I think in the end, I am glad that they did it the way they did with her. But it, I think there was potential for Kim to go all the way bad. And instead of like the end, which is her like kind of showing us all like, yeah, I'm still willing to be a little bad. And so, um, you know, this it's probably healthier this way. But you could have done something really crazy with Kim. Yeah, I, I'm satisfied with the ending we got for Kim personally, but I'm not satisfied uh, with that brown hair, but <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> She's such a pretty woman. And it goes to show that like a bad haircut can really take someone down. <laughs> all right so what is one loose thread in this universe that bothers you that you would have loved to see tied up this is another one that i had to think about because this show did a really good job between better call saul and and um 
uh, El Camino and like tying up almost everything. But for me, what happened to Brock? Mm. Uh, because here's the thing. After Andrea gets murdered, it feels like something should have been said about that. You get yeah. that one part in El Camino where Jesse sends a letter, but is he in a foster home? Did he go up grand? Like where the... Well, I mean, like, this yeah. Kid... I would hope that it's that he goes with like, because Andrea has a relationship with the grandma. You'd hope that's it. But like... You know, I would assume that she would take him the fuck away from Albuquerque, given everything that's happened to their family, you know? Right. And that's why I just that was like the one thing I could think of is that like that that kid felt important and it felt like they were going to come back to like something. Mm -hmm. But like they just didn't. You yeah. know what I mean? Like he just kind of was, OK, well, his mom's dead. Uh, we're going to move on, yeah. you know, like. So um, one thing that I found, like, especially because they have that scene um with uh, Francesca at the, you know, at the payphone, and she kind of fills Saul in on everything. And it would be nice if you, if um, you use that as an opportunity, because you could have totally done this. I would have loved to know if after the, uh, the feds and the DEA raided the Nazi compound, if they found Jesse's confession DVD. Because it was there, they were watching it. Oh, yeah. Because there's, because if they found the DVD, then I could tell myself that Drew Sharp's parents knew what happened to him. Because that's one of the biggest, like, kind of dangling threads of the show is the tragedy that there is a child who was murdered and his body was literally dissolved and a child who was murdered for no reason. Like, I mean, he, he witnessed a crime, but he didn't know what the fuck happened. Like, what, yeah, again, yeah. one of the most innocent deaths in the whole series um, and that his parents do not know what happened to him. And so, like... I if you could have had a little throwaway line about like oh yeah they knew they knew Pinkman was collaborating with the feds because of the because they found a DVD or something then that would tell me that there's a chance cuz he mentioned again you know in my opening line Todd the Opie dead-eyed piece of shit took out his gun and shot the kid like <laughs> so yeah I would have loved some sort of proof that Drew Sharp's parents knew what happened to him Yeah that's a good one too mm -hmm. that's a good one too Also I think we're left to assume that Donald Margolis is dead because he they say he was rushed to hospital with a self-inflicted gunshot wound, which usually means he ate it. But I would have liked some confirmation that he was dead. <laughs> well, um, that's like, uh, did you know that there were people that questioned whether or not Walter was dead at the end of Breaking Bad? They like, confirmed it in El Camino. Like, you idiots, of course he's dead. Come on. <laughs> You're telling me the man, the man with cancer who like yeah. fucking had a bullet go through him that, and, and also is bleeding out terrible. the location. Like, <laughs> you, he was dying with every breath in that last yeah, episode. I realize the cops are coming, but do you think they're going to rush to, like, yeah. to put a cop killer who's bleeding out in the ground in, in their cruiser and get him to safety yeah. in the first place? No. I have to say, also, the way they outfitted Brian Cranston in that last episode, like, props to the costume department because they made him look so small. They made him look yeah. like, like, especially the scene where he's in Gretchen and Elliot's home, like, the jacket they put him in and stuff. He looks like 5'7". And he yep. looks so thin. Um, Gone. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Um, okay, so we've reached the peak. So across this vast universe of Breaking Bad, El Camino, Better Call Saul, when do you think the franchise was at its peak? I'm go Okay, I'm going to give a few answers here, but I will give an ultimate answer here. Mm -hmm. Okay, so season-wise, season um, Breaking Bad season four. Mm-hmm. Better Call Saul season six mm -hmm. would be what I would choose as the peak seasons of each show. Uh, as, and the funny thing is, 
my peak episodes because Better Call Saul, I think, is like a better show as a whole. But I think I could name two episodes of Breaking Bad that I would choose as their peak episodes. Mm -hmm. First would be in Crawl Space, which ends scarier than any horror movie, a, horror movie I've ever seen. But my ultimate, the ultimate peak for this is Ozymandias, which you brought up earlier. Yes. It's one of the best shows of television ever, ever, ever. It is so... It is so like soul suckingly bleak. That and... that shot of Anna Gunn screaming in the middle of the street, like covered in blood, uh, mm -hmm. while Walter drives off. Actually, for me, it's the shot right before it where Walter is just forcefully backing up the truck and backing like backing another car out of the driveway and again Dave Porter's score just making everything feel like a fucking waking nightmare. Like, um, and I will also say like, that's like when the ratings were just at a peak for it as well. So I would say like quality peak, Ozymandias, very much a peak of it. I would also say in terms of like when people started like really hiving around this and buzzing, Gus's death. If we're going to go for a moment, because that is the moment of like, this is everything Walter White is capable of. This is everything this show is capable of. This is how complex we are willing to get. Like the, because not just the death, but the depth of lies and stuff that led Walter to get Jesse back on his side. And, you know, like mm -hmm. outfitting a, a stroke survivor with a pipe bomb for pure revenge. <laughs> like, wow. But I would say uh, there is a very key, like in terms of its peak cultural relevance, and I got to come back to when Odenkirk had his heart attack, which uh, we later learned was in the in the midst of shooting the most stressful episode of the series yet, which is Point and Shoot. That 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 episode gave me a heart attack. Like that episode is so stressful. But um, the like every again, everyone just being like, "Oh my God, Bob Odenkirk, he's all our dad," and realizing right. that like that. We love this complicated, weird man that is Jimmy McGill. We like we know he is a bad guy. We know he and Kim are bad, but we love him. We love the actor that plays him. Like he is our comfort character. Um, and I just think also with Better Call Saul, like you know, like we said with Breaking Bad, there's some you know missing fandom in there. Like there's people who think like Walter's actually kind of a cool person, or like Skyler's a real bitch, or whatever. I think like. Better Call Saul, people get it more. And I think maybe it's because they were better at storytelling at that point, but like people get it that like, yes, we are supposed to cheer for Jimmy and he is our protagonist, but we're not supposed to think that everything or anything he does is good. And yeah. so I think by the time you reach the point of like the climax of their pranks on Howard and stuff, every they are so good at telling the story that no one thinks that what they did is good. No one thinks that these people deserve a happy life, but we're so, we just want to see where it's going. So I think yeah. that's peak cultural relevance of this franchise. Um, also, frankly, that was the moment when we knew that it, this was standing alone. This was no longer in Breaking Bad Shadow. Um, yeah. So what do you think is the gap between the best of this franchise and the worst of it? Honestly, um, I mean, I guess it depends on what you consider. the. I, I, I don't think there is. If you're counting El Camino, it's it's even then, I don't think it's a huge gap. I think El Camino is just fine. But I, I was just OK. So, for example, I looked at the worst rated show and this isn't how I feel, but worst rated. I was just curious. Mm -hmm. The worst rated show on IMDb worst rated episode is. Get this fly of all things. Oh, I'm not sake. surprised. I, I like fly, but I know so that it's I. a very polarizing episode. I don't, but like if that's as bad as that show gets, yeah, like 
the, the, the difference isn't that huge. Like, I don't think there is much of a, a, a gulf between the best and the worst of this show. Like, um, it just it's more about tone because again like okay you take an episode like Ozymandias, Ozymandias or uh crawl space or point and shoot or the episode where gus dies like yes these are action heavy episodes but when you like the difference between episodes like that and episodes like fly is that they're more like slow and meditative sort of episodes yeah. like and that's fine either way i like either version of that show so to me i don't think the difference is that big yeah i think like i always use like a letter grade and so i'd say like if face off if ozymandias if if um uh if point and shoot are your a plus i would say that like you know maybe a few episodes of season one or scenes where skylar was like more just a dumb housewife like that's that's a b plus um i'd say maybe mm. like the lowest i would say El Camino is a B minus, maybe a C plus if I'm grumpy, you know? Um, and again, that's just like, that's not even like, I, I, I'm I very bad at looking at El Camino on its own merits. I like, I still get caught up in this doesn't need to exist. Um, but like at its worst, it's a C plus, but I would still say it's probably like a B minus. And there's a lot of A pluses in the show. Um, so yeah. Um, Okay, so if you were going to ask someone to start to watch this franchise, what advice would you give them before they start? Uh, first and foremost, I would say make sure that you save yourself a few days just in case, because if this <laughs> made me binge, you're going to need those because I don't usually do that, especially if you're a binger. And and then the other one would probably be um, give Skyler some time before you make any judgments. That would probably be my because I I know what I was absolutely one of those people in the first season. I was like I don't like Skyler all that much. And then like mm -hmm. as the show progressed, I was like wait Skyler's not bad. Walter's a shithead. Well, she know? wasn't written particularly well in the first season either. No, and, you know they gave Anna Gunn time and let her mature with the role. Um, so okay, yeah, my advice would be absolutely give Skyler some time. Um, I would also say um, with, um, I mean, with both these shows, I'd say write things down. Don't think that anything is unimportant because you're going to be so delighted when this comes back in five seasons or when this comes back in Better Call Saul. I will also say you don't have to watch El Camino, but I would actually say like for the most part, go in order of production, like watch Breaking Bad and then watch Better Call Saul. Don't go chronologically. But I would say if you're going to watch El Camino, save it for the end, because if you want a palate cleanser and if you want if if seeing Jesse have his happy ending is that important to you, watch El Camino at the end. That's a good that's a good advice. And I, I know that I saw people that were like talking about watching it like out of chronological order and watching mm -hmm. Saul first. And that's that doesn't work. It doesn't. There's. I don't think it would work as well that way. So um, that's good advice too. Uh, like watch it yeah. in order productive. Well, and I also think again, like we talk about the tone and we talk about like the way that Better Call Saul broadens the world so much more. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. I just realized there was a note that I completely glossed over from the beginning, but I'm going to say it right now because why the fuck not? Um, I think a lot of people know this bit of trivia that originally they wanted to set it in like the greater LA metropolitan area in like Ontario, California-ish. And they went to New Mexico because of the tax breaks. And that is like more than any casting decision. That is something that I cannot imagine the show without is mm -mm. the backdrop backdrop of New Mexico, um, which is that like it's, you know, because that allows for you to actually have the commentary on the war on drugs and what, you know, what drugs do to low income communities versus, you know, who are the people that profit off of drugs like it. 
oh god, it makes Albuquerque look like such a shithole in so many yeah. ways. But it's it it gives it more tragedy. And like without New Mexico, you don't have like Hank doing the El Paso task force. You don't have the cartel. Like it's a completely different show, both in terms of plot element and tonality. So um yeah. I, and so with with Better Call Saul, though, I find the reason why you have to start with Breaking Bad is because Breaking Bad is still ultimately very insular. It is essentially a singular focus on one man and a little bit on the people around him. You go to Better Call Saul and you got you open it up to so many characters and mm -hmm. it, it makes the world so big. And I think it would be really jarring to go the opposite because Br Better Call Saul tells so many interesting stories about so many people and then it shrinks down in Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's very good point because, and that that's because yeah, it's it's very, it's very it's much more uh, yeah smaller scale because of the, uh, yeah budgetary constraints and everything else mm -hmm. that that it just wouldn't work as well if you went for one or the other mm -hmm. in the way it was not in, in the way it was in the way it wasn't shot mm -hmm. yeah you gotta you gotta go on the production order yeah all right Eric well tell everyone again where they can find you and or your podcast on Twitter what some of your recent or upcoming episodes are this is coming out on March 30th okay so uh when this comes out I'll actually be unlocking one of my Patreon exclusive bonus episodes you can find that at www.patreon.com forward slash soundtracker um but I'm unlocking fear and loathing in Las Vegas will be one of the ones I'm unlocking uh right after this comes out but um you can find me on Twitter at U-W-E-B-O-L-L-O-C-K-S, Uwe Bollocks, I, I hate saying it out loud, uh, and you can find the podcast on at Soundtracker with an underscore. The show can be found anywhere you listen. It's on Spotify. It's on a uh, Apple. Um, as far as upcoming episodes, my March has been um, Long Kiss Good... I gotta remember that. Long Kiss Good Night, Carlito's Way, uh, two-part Spider-Man episode, uh the spider-man episode I'm, was amazing by the way or episodes thank you yeah. Hen henry's so fun i i love henry to death um and then uh last action hero and then next month will be as we said earlier i start with pulp fiction with uh matt chrisman and then go right into brie doing basketball which like, believe it or not basketball <laughs> and i very ironically saying believe it or not came from our conversation when i was on here talking about matt and trey it was one of those things where brie brought up liking basketball when we were talking and i was like, ah, i love that too and then it's just one thing i do another here and um but yeah so if you want to catch brie i've got all those episodes i've got those coming out after this and uh i've got zodiac ending the month of april um see, I, I always i'm so bad at remembering the order that i'm doing these in uh dude where's my car is the other one that's going to be in april so it's like a really varied month i've got like a couple comedies and then uh a uh, <laughs> couple of long long uh serious films so um yeah but uh check it out uh and and I'd appreciate it if you did. Yeah, from Groove is in the Heart to the Hurdy Gurdy Man. That's uh, <laughs> those are two very different soundtracks. Um, Hurdy Gurdy Man might be one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, it's 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 taken on a new sort of feeling for me since Zodiac. Yeah. though. like it's it also gives me the creeps. <laughs> that butthole surface cover is quite good. Um, it is. Yeah. Well, as for me, I've been your host, Bree. You can find me on Twitter at prune underscore underscore Tracy. Of course, you can also follow this podcast on twitter at peak show pod where there is significantly less talking about hockey so you probably want to check it out there um now uh as much as this show is taking a bit of a snooze for a while you can find uh some back episodes in our back catalog including obviously 
the aforementioned Matt and Trey episode. We talk about X-Files and some Vince Gilligan stuff there with Mr. Andrew Jufin in a recent episode. You, you hear me talk about how much you love weird little guy Mark Proch in our This Is Us episode. We've got uh, episodes about David Fincher in which we talk about Mindhunter and Zodiac with my friend Mint Marcellus. We talk about horror movies. We talk about workplace comedies. We talk about everything on Peak Show, and that's why I'm very tired. Thank you very much for listening, and take it easy. <laughs>